start the ship, Leela. Let's just steal the damn radar dish and get back to our own time. But, but won't that change history? Oh, a lesson in not changing history from Mr. I'm My Own Grandpa. Let's get the hell out of here already. It's movie time. What's up, everybody? It's movie time podcast from Pop Zara. That's right. It's the podcast about movies and things. It's movie time. This is your co-host, Nathan Evans, managing editor of PopZara.com. Talking movies, talking popcorn with co-host, Mr. Ethan Brem. Ethan, welcome back. Hey, how's it going? So real quick, um, did you hear the opening intro? Yeah, I, okay. what was that, Rick and Morty or something? Oh, no, 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 no. But you, you, you know it why sounded I like it. it sounded like, uh, what's his name, um, the guy who voiced Stimpy. You mean Billy West? Billy West. I almost called him Adam West, but yeah, Billy West. <laughs> you would be correct. Um, no, that's a little clip from Futurama. Um, Futurama, yeah, okay. I, I think, haven't watched I don't watch either of the shows. I think that's the episode that won him an Emmy. It's where they went back in time to Roswell and Fry became his own grandpa. So, and I think you realize why I picked that clip right now. Um, oh, yeah. We're going to get into it. So, again, this is the Movie Time podcast from Popstar. We talk about movies, and we usually talk about two movies that are a little similar, a little different. We're going to make it work. Um, today, Ethan picked the two films. Thank goodness, because, what a films. What a bunch. <laughs> what, a, what a things. I don't even know how to say it. Like, there's, some, there's something going on. You're going to want to... Pay attention to this one. This one's different. Let's get into it. So, Ethan, let's talk about the films you picked, and we'll get into it. So, what did you pick? Okay, so I picked two movies um, that, on the surface, you're like, these have nothing to do with each other. You dig a little deeper, and you're like, okay, I can totally see why how these two can are almost kismet, uh, in a sense. Um, the first one we're going to talk about is 1996's um, divisive, to say the least, uh, bomb the stupids directed by john landis and then the second movie we're going to discuss is uh 2018's aka 2019's under the silver lake by david robert mitchell another pretty notorious in how it was the release was handled not a lot of people saw it or even heard of it it was kind of pretty polarizing upon its release uh even still um although it has developed quite a cult following if you have perused reddit even in the slightest i uh when you when you when you first picked these two, okay, I heard of both of them, and I'll say this: I thought you were crazy. I thought Ethan is in his room right now with one of those boards with all the photos up there with the string and the connections, and he's trying to figure out what the secret sauce is to to connect the stupids with under the silver lake. And I couldn't figure it out. And but you know what? I think I cracked the code. Yeah. I think I got it. What do you but got? Oh, I'm Are not going to save I'm it. Not okay. Save, I'm saving it. See, if you look, if we're going to make people listen to this, yeah. I'm not well, giving you the candy until you do the wrapper. That's all well, I'm saying. Well, on the very on the very surface, um they're both they both involve conspiracies. Oh, and yeah. they both and they both had very notorious releases, um mm-hmm. at least for their own uh contemporary time. But um I think we should talk about the stupids first. What do you think? I think the stupids. Let's listen to the trailer for the stupids. Here we go. Stupids. The weapons you are about to see are American made. The world is in grave danger. International law has long kept you from acquiring them. I hope to help you overcome that. And there's only one family who can save it. I've uncovered the crime of the century. They call them fearless. They call them dangerous. Aha! 
call them the stupids. Cinema invites you to meet the only family that does all its own stuff. Impossible. Whatever. Tom Arnold is stupid. My family and I do not wish to fight you. Get him! Are they giving up? No. Stanley's stupid. What you been doing? Ah, this and that. Had breakfast, read the paper, saved the world. The stupids. Now that's a well-made shoe. You know what? That's a really joke-heavy trailer. Yeah. And I forgot, like, you know what's funny? You listen to that now, and it almost sounds like the soundtrack from Mortal Kombat. It kind of does, right? <laughs> yeah, it really does. And I, I read somewhere that they were... Uh, tr- uh, doing like a parody of Rumble in the Bronx. I don't know if I see it, but um, mm-hmm. maybe I... the trailer from Rumble in the Bronx, I should say. Well, they probably thought they were going to have the next Dumber and Dumber too. So it's yeah, and that and, th- and that's yeah. I'm I'm going to get into that too. Um, so yeah, 19, 1996, This was a year or two after Tom Arnold was in True Lies, mm-hmm. um, huge movie. James Cameron, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, he was th- I think third build in that movie. Um, and in 1996 alone, he starred in two comedies, Carpool and The Stupids, both of which bombed. Um, and I think The Stupids was a more notorious bomb because it was directed by John Landis. Um, I can't remember the movie he did right before this, but, um, you know, he was pretty hot in the 80s. And he had some really big hits coming to America, Whoa. trading places. You mean John Landis? Yeah, John Landis. Oh man, John Landis is a legend. I thought almost yeah. like you were talking about Arnold. Like when I, when I when I first learned about Tom Arnold, it wasn't from Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. Was it Roseanne? It was Roseanne. Yeah. And he was likable. He was fun. He was a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But he, I, I think we know now it's kind of like the Polly Shore effect. Like yeah. you could take this guy for like two minutes at a time, maybe three minutes, four tops, but stretch it out to a movie because holy hell, like. The first thing I was thinking about, what's that movie he did with uh, Rick Moranis? Um, oh, Big Bully. Big, or, Big Bully. Yeah. Was it Big Bully? Yeah, Big Bully. Man, John Landis. What a what a, what a guy. <laughs> so what do you think about yeah. Landis? Um, so I actually, I, I really like John Landis. I'm uh, tr- My favorite movie that he's done besides this one um, is probably Trading Places. I like Blues Brothers, too. I'm not a huge coming to America Fan. Ooh, I do like, uh, but but I do like Kentucky Fried Movie, which was I think his first, or is his second one um, after I think he did a movie called like Schlock or something. Well, we we talked. I mean, we talked about Animal House a little bit, right? When when we yeah. did, um, we talked about uh, oh goodness, uh, what was the movie we talked about on this Hamburger? No, not Hamburger. Oh, uh, uh, Meatballs. That's meatballs. right, because uh, Harold Ramis. Yeah. Yeah, Harold Ramis, and not to be confused, by the way, with the late Harold Ramis. But um, no, I mean, I got to tell you something. If you were into comedy movies in the '80s, you were a John Landis fan. Yeah. Like, John Landis kind of defined a good portion of the 1980s for a, for a lot Definitely. of comedy. So, Michael Jackson was a fan, you know, big fan. Yeah, he directed uh, Thriller. Thriller, yeah, after American Werewolf in London, which is still one. Yeah, of you great... like that? Oh, That's one it. of your favorites. I love yeah. that movie. But I'll just say this before I let you back. Uh, I'm a huge Coming to America fan. 
just absolutely, absolutely. like get favorite, a, at favorite Eddie Murphy movie favorite Eddie Murphy movie but probably yeah. favorite comedy of the 80s for me really wow okay. I, yeah like I, I I don't know what it is there's something about this movie where I feel like I'm looking at a parallel dimension and there's very few movies that I can name that I feel like there's world building in one single movie and, yeah. uh, and none of that was in the sequel <laughs> so none of it yeah and, and, and there are one or two actors from the stupids um, that were in Coming to Mary I think Frankie Faison was the one that comes uh, to mind um, he played the Lloyd the Lloyd <laughs> so. in the stupids um, I forget who he was in Coming to America but I remember seeing it in his filmography um, but yeah uh, the stupids was a movie that it came out in 1996 I don't think I saw the trailer. I saw, maybe I did. I saw the poster and thought <laughs> it looked awesome. And I begged my mom to go see it. And she was a, a stay-at-home mom at the time. And it was, came out during the summer. She took me to go see it. The, the one week it was in theaters. And there were two other people in one together in, uh, in the theater. They left halfway through. And my mom and I stuck it out. My mom thought it my mom hates this movie like notoriously hates this movie i try in my whole life every when i was a kid i i threw this thing on at parties people rolling their eyes i for whatever reason i latched onto the stupids at a young age i remember the first time I ever this was the first movie i ever loved it was my first favorite movie um arguably even the most important movie of my life it was it was when i realized that i think at a young age i had um maybe not uh, popular ideas about mm. art and, and film, but I was definitely had fresh ideas and was capable of analyzing film in a unique way um, that I think other people well, weren't capable of doing. Maybe I think we should, I think we should put a, a stopper here and just say that one of the great things about being a movie lover or any lover, to be honest with you, is that you can have preferences, right? You can have preferences. You can watch something that even if you know in your heart is not a good film, even if you know that it's atrocious, it's badly made, badly directed, badly acted, badly plotted, like the stupids, you can still love, you can still love this film. And Lord knows, like when I was watching the stupids, the one movie it kept reminding me of is a movie that is, I would say, on par badness-wise and I think you and I talked about this. It was the Martin Short movie Clifford. Oh, yeah. I've never seen Clifford. Yeah. Clifford and the Stupids. I, I almost thought you were going to put them together <laughs> at first. because they're Maybe both... I would have if I've seen it, but I'm, I'm glad I picked these I'm ones. I'm glad but... you picked these two because I don't think I could do two. I think I'd throw myself out of a building. So not a Stupids fan, I can tell. I will say, which, which again, I'm used to. Like everyone, almost everyone I've showed this to has not liked it um my wife actually i don't know if she's being nice she really likes this movie um she's she, watched she it with me being, three she, <laughs> she watches it with me and she laughs and okay here and but here's the thing that's crazy my dad is like his favorite movie is the godfather he's like this really you know he's very picky with film he told me one time he said i actually think the stupids is a pretty smart movie and he and ever since <laughs> i i that's like i've hung on to that because it's like the only good thing anyone's pretty much ever said about this movie to me i don't know man I, I i think it's i think that the story it wraps itself in is crazy um john landis actually said one time he thought that this that the movie didn't do well because it was misunderstood um and he felt that it worked on four different levels um and that that the audience maybe wasn't able to pick up on there's the level that the stupids are on then there's a the level that they think that they're on 
there's a level that their world is on and then there's a level that the audience is on in the real world um and it kind of makes sense everything in the movie makes sense uh, according to like those four planes uh, in its own way i mean you have yeah you, so so essentially let me get into what the movie's about it's about this family of incredibly dumb people who it starts off in tom arnold plays stanley stupid and he discovers that his trash someone's stolen the trash again um aka the garbage man picked it up and so he's like okay I'm, I'm determined to find out who did this so he takes some rollerblades and he follows the garbage truck he stays up all night and when the garbage truck rolls in he follows the garbage truck throughout its it's all of its stops ultimately leading to the the, the place where they drop off the landfill or whatever there is where this group of um, I don't know what you call them like basically illegal arms dealers are meeting because yeah they, just at a trash at the trash just yard. at a trash yeah at a trash yard and uh, and the illegal arms dealers meeting and and they think that Stanley's stupid uh, kind of like a dumb and dumber thing they think he's really a genius they're like this guy must to be brave enough to like approach us because Stanley's stupid just like talking to people and joking with them and the bush scene is kind of amazing can we say something real quick though. Yeah. This was a huge thing in the 90s where there's so many comedies where smart people would look at the dumbest person in the yeah. world and think they were a genius. It was definitely a trope. It was a 90s trope huge for sure. Trope. Huge yeah, trope. the guy that's how Dumb and Dumber is. Yeah. Th- okay, so like I compare this to Dumb and Dumber. It obviously has a lot of similarities. They're both stupid. Um, New Line but Studios, right? New Line both, yeah, Studios. you're right. It's both New Line. Um, I think here we get to see candid reactions to the antics. The Stupids is a kid's movie for all intents and purposes. We get to see candid reactions to their antics. Like we see when we're watching the Stupids interact, a lot of these people are are not even extras. They're literally just people walking on the street or whatever. Um, And I think that their stupidity is on a much grander scale, albeit less reckless than than Harry and Lloyd. Uh, But yeah, it it was almost, I I think it ties into why I love Letterman too. Uh, Letterman used to do the, the like, hidden camera stuff a lot or you know he'd go crash a drive a, uh, a drive through what's that movie you really liked uh with eric andre the one that uh, he came out was it last year the oh oh no I, I i was okay with it bad trip or something bad trip where it's, yeah you know that that sort of like improv i don't know if you call it like cinema video, borat right? was more of my yeah, style borat, the first exactly. borat yeah but yeah like you you know they incorporate the um the reactions into the comedy yeah i love that stuff and um and that's why i love borat borat's one of my favorite movies um of the last 20 years for sure uh yeah i i don't know something about the stupids like uh the stuff that gets the biggest laugh for me is when they're in, in the tv studio and um i don't know i i just i think that the way that it wraps up this to them this conspiracy makes sense everything's pointing to sender who's this person that when when to, uh, stanley stupid worked at as a post op, or a, a mail courier he discovered that Every once in a while, there'd be a stamp that says "Return to Sender," and he went to his supervisor and said, "Who is this sender, and what does he want with everyone's mail?" Actually, it's and, a good, that's a very good gag, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot of like this kind of stuff that's just—it's almost like doesn't call a lot of attention to itself because the jokes are just kind of like inadvertent almost half the time. Um, they're not really like big punchlines; they're just kind of like existing in the context of their stupidity. Uh, which I think is cool, but also yeah. So that he unravels this conspiracy, and through the conspiracy, it kind of like morphs as he's trying to figure it out. And then there's this one really good montage with Christopher Lee, 
and uh, and where he plays this like uh, fantasized version of Sender, uh, and and all the things are connecting in the movie in this one sequence, um, which I think is really great. Yeah. Hi, by the way, highlight of the film, by the way, that and the song, which we'll get into later. Um, you know what's funny? Yeah. I um, I thought this movie would have been wild if it turns out all the conspiracies were true. Yeah. Like like imagine if that fantasy scene turned out to be real. So, oh yeah. Sort of like uh, did you ever, you remember uh, Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz when oh, yeah. you know Simon Pegg gets sent to the sleepy town and it turns out they're all bad. Like there's actually a village yeah. of bad people. Like jump kicks grandma in the face. <laughs> like that's I I perked up and I thought please save me, but no, it didn't save me. Oh, you wanted it to be. Oh, I see. I see. Like, it would have been. I don't know. I mean, I forgive me for this. Maybe it would. Uh, because you're right. The movie does play it straight. Can we be honest? Mm-hmm. At no point in time does any of the stupid characters ever look at the screen and acknowledge that they're in a movie. Like they they fully are self-absorbed in their own stupidity. Yeah. And they commit to it. Like they never break character. Yeah, I, and I honestly, I know you don't like Tom Arnold. I think he's great here. I um, think this is the most perfect. I don't hate Tom Arnold. I mean, he's okay. He's. he's I think he's he. Okay. I think he nailed the just like not naive, naive naivete of the character. Just like this goofy grin he always has. He's just driving the car. He just has like this stupid grin on his face. No, no nothing interacting with him. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it, for me. For me, I I kind of align it and hear me out with the Muppets in a way, mm-hmm. in that like the Muppets, their naivety is all often met with like annoyance uh, by the more aggressive people uh, or the more knowing people. Like people seem to get like frustrated at the Muppets a lot of times. Well, go back to Arnold for a second, though. Arnold, uh, to, not to be confused with Arnold Schwarzenegger, but there's talking with Tom Arnold, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although true lies. Um, he was growing as a bit player, right? He was basically he was basically in that Joe Pesci role, whereas he was the comedic yeah. side. Because Joe Pesci was a, another fantastic, fantastic, funny actor who was becoming sort of pigeonholed as this cheap comedy actor. Like, like I, I don't even want to get into some of the films, but you know, let's just say the super, and we'll go from there. Yeah. And uh, and you know that he's more than that, right? You know Joe Pesci's more. He just saw him in Casino. You know he's more than that. But the, the thing about Tom Arnold, and I feel bad for him, is that the world had Jim Carrey at the time. The world, the world, like Jim Carrey, like, you know this, was the biggest actor in the world in 1996. Uh, like, nobody was close. He, he had the Jim biggest Carrey. year of any actor maybe ever. Yes, ever. And ever. Like, it's never, I don't think it's ever going to happen again, where he had, like, what is it, six number one hits? Yeah, Dumb and Dumber, the, was it The Mask oh, and no. Ace Ventura? He had yeah, it was Ace Ventura one, Ace Ventura two, The Mask, he uh, Batman, Batman Forever was it? Then, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, then he had. I mean, he just kept going and going and going, Dumb and Dumber, and it just, you know, it's, and he he played this. Can you imagine? And I'm not trying to like erase Tom Arnold, but can you imagine someone like Jim Carrey in this movie, almost in a way? Like, would it be the yeah, same I, film? See, I don't think it would have worked because I think, I think Jim Carrey would have been too aware that this was. He would have been too aware that it was supposed to be funny. Mm-hmm. And I think what makes Tom Arnold work is he's not almost I, – I read this story one time when John Lennon is, uh, was talking about the production. And he said at one point Tom Arnold looked at him and said, is this – like I don't understand this joke. <laughs> and he was like, no, no, it's fine. It's, it's Don't worry about it. It's going to be good. I mean the writers on this show – uh, I mean, the writers, the writer on this movie or the screenplay for The Stupids, like he's written for like The Office and like some like really big uh, mm-hmm. TV shows. 
um i mean this guy's like a comedy writer through and through um is not is not small uh small time here but uh, let's go to look at him real quick brent forster right here's from wikipedia the simpsons right between like in the 90s Mm-hmm. Ben Stiller show, the show, uh, oh, yeah. Mr. Show. Mr. show yeah. God, I used to love that show. Uh, Undeclared, Super Fun Night, The Office, yep, and worked on King of the Hill, Love, and Space Force. By the way, Space Force, don't know what happened to that show, just cratered. <laughs> I've never seen Space Force. Um, but yeah, I mean, like this guy, so I mean, this is a guy who knows comedy, obviously. If you just looked at his resume, you'd be like, okay, this guy is probably really funny. He probably knows how to write comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the jokes and the stupids work because tom arnold maybe doesn't get them and all the time at least and i think that that's why they work and you have two kid actors who i think do a decent job at it as well the mom um i think is great too uh but yeah i I think if it were jim carrey it would be a lot of like this is supposed to be funny and and very big and and not as subtle if you can use that word I got a question for you, though. I mean, I don't want to get into the mucky muck, right? Because we talk about this once in a while. We're, tra- we're trying to talk about the movie as it is. Yeah. And But we do have to go back in time a little bit. I don't want to get too much into it. But at, at the time when this movie was made, John Landis was kind of a burnt flower. And for reasons that are are fair or unfair, um, his, his... Oh, the Twilight Zone thing. Yeah, the Twilight Zone thing. Yeah, Again, uh, I forget about that. Yeah, look up the Twilight Zone and John Landis and you come to your own conclusions. But there was a there was a well publicized feud between him and Eddie Murphy about how Eddie uh, I don't want to get into that either. But how Eddie Murphy basically say he had to he was doing John Landis a favor when he made him do uh, Beverly Hills Cop Three, which is by the way the worst one, the worst one. And I wonder if the stupids was the beginning of the end for John Landis. What do you think? Because I because you look at nineteen seventy like nineteen seventy eight Animal House, Blues Brothers, American yeah, in London. You know, trading places like let's be honest here, spies like us. Clue. Yeah, incredible, yeah. I mean, Clue. Three Amigos. He even he even wrote yeah he he yeah he did uh, story stuff for Clue I think yeah. yeah. Um, I mean yeah, dude, dude, this guy was like top of his game of any. I mean, you look at comedy directors in general. I mean, even he had a longer streak than Jed Apatow had, and Jed Apatow changed. Was there a the bigger landscape. comedy director in the eighties? Like was there oh no, really? I mean John, you can count John Hughes, I guess maybe. Yeah. But um, as a direct, like as a like as a straight up like blockbuster, yeah, yeah, yeah. John Hughes is more known for his screenplays, I guess. But yeah, um, probably. I mean, there there can't be. I mean, there. I mean, who did? Um, I mean, oh no, Rob Reiner is pretty big. I yeah, guess. Rob but Reiner he did, too. He didn't do as much though. I mean, John Landis had like a movie every two years, one or two years almost at at one point. Um, the dudes who did uh, Airplane, the what are the uh, Zuckers? Zuckers. They, they were. I guess they didn't direct it. They did they write it? Um, but even uh, then, like they pretty much just stuck in that wheelhouse. They didn't really have a uh, versatility. No, it's crazy though. It's it's just it's it's yeah. Nothing lasts forever, right? And you know, there, we, yeah. can, we can get into it later about like there's almost like this curse. You have these phenomenally phenomenally successful like writer directors or comedy directors. Um, who was the guy who did Adam's Family? Uh, he was the cinematographer. Oh, uh, Barry Sonnenfeld. Yeah, Barry Sonnenfeld or, or Christopher Columbus. Like, oh yeah, that's massive true. directors that somehow just fell flat at some point. Yeah, their films stopped being. And I James L. Brooks, another dude. Oh my god! You know, I don't. I hate to put him in this in this category, but I'm gonna have to put 
Robert Zemeckis in that category a little bit. Yeah, you, you have to. I mean, yeah, you have to. Did you see the trailer for the Pinocchio movie? No, no. That's the Tom Hanks one, right? Yeah, it's no. It, it's and, like, there, and it, it's also uh, not helping that there's another one by Guillermo del Toro. Was or, it Guillermo del Toro did the other one? Yeah, or there's a, there was another one by uh, Bernardo Buc- uh, What's his name? Um, Roberto Benigni. Oh he, yeah, yeah. That. By the way, Roberto Benigni, Roberto Benigni did two Pinocchio movies within twenty years. That's um, wild. It was yeah. frightening. It was terrifying. Right. It was terrifying. It was based on the actual book. But it's like I look at the new Pinocchio and I'm like, you learned nothing from the last 20 years, Robert. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to feel sterile. I mean, I hope I mean, obviously, we're, we're talking like we haven't seen it. But yeah, exactly. I mean, um, it, I'm just we're, we're assuming based on I me, mean, if you've seen the Christmas Carol, this is all the same kind of stuff. The Christmas Carol, mm-hmm. uh, Beowulf. I mean, the, this stuff, he has not proven that I will say Polar Express for what it is, I think, is a pretty fun movie. I think it's a great kids movie. I think it's really a, it's a good adventure. It's but Tom, it's got a good Tom Hanks, like yeah, it, it, Tom it, Hanks in the world. Though it was also ahead of its time. Like after that, I think is when Zemeckis was like, okay, well, let me see what else I can do with the motion the motion capture stuff. And then I think he just mm-hmm. got way uh, in too deep with it. Um, but yeah, Polar Express was one of the first ones that did it, and I think it, it's probably the best example of it. That besides like when you get into avatars type well, stuff, but. To be fair, though, I, I remember going to I, – I didn't see it in the theater, but I remember renting uh, Burke and Hare when it came out, which is Landis's last directorial effort. Okay, yeah. And Because I love Simon Pegg, and I like Andy Serkis quite a bit, and just not feeling it, man. Like there was something – I didn't see that one. Yeah, nobody did. <laughs> so that's the, the – where they do the, they play the two uh, real-to-life grave robbers. Okay. Uh, but no, it's like at some point you, you feel bad. It's like not everybody can be a um, – um, oh, what's his name? Who's the guy who? Uh, I feel so terrible for saying this. Who's the one who did Mad Max? Oh, uh, George Miller. Yeah, like not everybody can have a comeback like George Miller. Yeah. So he's got a new movie out too with uh, Idris Elba. Yeah, though. Yeah. Oh man, I, I want to see. He's a genie. He's a genie. <laughs> yeah, so, that looks cool. So I do want to see that. But going back though, what were you, what were you saying now um, about? So, tell me, like, there's no other way to say it. Like, I'm trying to figure out something interesting to say about the stupids. <laughs> In a way, because I, because I've seen if, because let's just let's just assume that most of the people listening to this haven't seen it or heard of it or heard of it, which is kind of sad because it, I'll be honest with you, I don't hate this movie. Like okay. that's that's the thing. I'll just say this: I wrote this in my notes, right? I wrote this in my notes, and this is me being generous here, generous to a fault. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine taking a comedy movie and making every single wrong decision, like from every performance, every all, the script. The way things are filmed, like every single moment in this movie, is wrong, and I'm wondering if it's genius because of that. Like, I I, I couldn't stop I, watching it. I couldn't stop watching it. That's the thing. It's it, it's it's easy to think that I have a bias because I you know watched this when I was a kid and oh, I grew up biased. with it. You're definitely and, biased. And, and, and no, I know, but I'm for sure biased. But I think at one point when I was probably in a high school, maybe junior high. I watched this and it had been a couple of years and I watched it, you know, just like, okay, I'm watch it again. You know, maybe, maybe I don't like it as much as I did. And I, and I just, I just loved it again. And I, I, I think I started understanding things about it and it sounds wild. And this is where I'm, I'm connecting it with under the silver lake. in one of the ways, um, I think you have to watch it a couple of times to really understand what it's doing. It's throwing a lot at you. It's throwing a lot at you, and you don't even. And because it's so, 
inane, you don't feel like it's throwing a lot at you. You feel like it. you should be able to understand this perfectly the first time around. But the truth is, it's. I don't think you can. I think you have to, in order to understand like the full scope of the story, um, not just the plot, but the actual story, like what these characters are inferring, I think you have to see it a couple of times. What was that uh, movie with Tom Arnold where he played a cannibal? Do you remember that? Cannibal? Oh, no. I don't know this one. The Cannibal Dad? What? what? Yeah. Is this new? Is this like a no, new Trump it, thing? No, or it's, what? It's, a, it's, um, it's an older movie, but I've, I've never met anybody. Let me see dad. if I can look this up. I remember the one where uh, Randy Quaid played the parents. Hmm. Where he played the cannibal and parents. You know what? I'm going to hell in a handbasket. It was Randy Quaid. Is that, are you thinking of parents? Yeah, it's parents. Yeah. Okay, see, that's the problem, is that you can't have a universe of which Tom Arnold and Randy Quaid are <laughs> I knew exactly space. who you were talking about, too. That's the best part. I knew exactly who you were talking about. But, um, yeah, that's, a, that's so, an odd movie, too. And uh, by the way, if you really want to see something that's stranger than anything that we're going to talk about today, just look at Randy Quaid's Twitter profile. It's the strangest thing I've ever seen. I'm not telling you to go look at it because I don't want to be responsible for your sanity. Yeah. But, the, but that dude went went to Canada and went to space and never came back. Huh. There's something like it's kind of like surreal, like pop art right there, what he's doing. So I apologize, Tom Arnold, for comparing you to Randy Quaid. Um, so, but no, I mean, that's kind of, well, it used to be a compliment. Randy Quaid used to be pretty cool. Yeah, um, vacation movies and stuff. So real quick, have you ever seen the other Landis movie called Into the Night? No, uh, no, with uh, Gold, uh, Goldblum, right? Yeah, Jeff Goldblum. I just want to say no. this. I don't want to get too much in. I don't want to jump ahead of it. But Into the Night is aesthetically closer to the other film we're going to be talking about. Like it's almost huh. the same pattern. It's that whole world. I could see that just by the poster. Yeah. yeah. It's so crazy though because this movie, I almost thought you were going to pick this movie because when you said John Landis – because I thought about going back to um, an old John Landis movie. Well, especially Niedermeyer is in um, is in the Stupids. Well, the from Animal House. Well, the, well, I don't want to get too much in, into Night, but basically John Landis he made this in the prime of his career when he was still white hot, and a lot of people thought this was his first mistake. Um, I think The Stupid is a much better movie than Into the Night, although Into the Night is a better made movie, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah I know what you're saying, yeah. And, uh, it's ba- but it's basically the same structure, whereas two mismatched people have to travel through the, the seedier, comedic, weird sides of L.A. to get to the end. Like kind of after hours type of stuff. Exactly, after hours, but you know, not the uh, Scorsese quality. Like, yeah. I think it, whereas uh, I think John Landis himself plays an assassin in this movie. But, huh. but it actually has a lot in common with the stupids. And the big thing it does, it has lots of cameos from directors. And because yeah. we didn't even talk about this. The stupids. I know. The third, the third reference on our podcast of this person. <laughs> yeah. But the, the stupids, man, it has lots of cameos from directors, yeah. um, including a great cameo from a guy we've talked about many, many times. Yeah, that's, yeah. What, I, that's what I was referring to. Yeah, we've t- the third, I think it's the third time he's been relevant in um, something we've talked George about. Wise? Yeah, Robert yeah. Wise. Robert Wise. He's yeah. Like, yeah, so I'm terrible with names today. But yeah, no, Robert I, Wise plays the neighbor. And, yeah, um, and that's crazy. I, I saw it because he directed Star Trek, and he directed um, The Day the Earth is Still. Yeah. No, but the ones we talked about. Yeah, he oh, did yeah. West Side Story and Sound of Music. It's just random. Like, that's just a random a random thing. Yeah. But, uh, but no, Into the Night, though, has, like, everyone from Jim Henson to, like, huh. yeah, Jim, uh, Jim Henson to Don Siegel. It's crazy. Wow, that's cool. So it's, like... 
you see John Lin is kind of repeating himself a little bit with the stupids. Yeah, interesting. It's a crazy idea, though. I mean, he's got that kind of pull to get these, you know, to get these famous people like these. I don't know if you, I don't know what you'd call them if they're directors. Um, names, yeah. not like t- you know, on-screen talent. Uh, his yeah. son's in the movie too, Max Landis. Yeah, he plays the kid, um, the graffiti artist. Oh, well, kid is, if you can does, call him that. Doesn't he get any? Has he been canceled? Are we? Do we still talk about? Yeah, Max see? Landis? Oh, I don't know what happened. Was something happened to him? Oh god! Yeah, you know, you could just everybody's going to be canceled at some point. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't follow the scandals. It's um, like I don't want. I don't want other people to tell me what to like. Or what not to like. I, I do want to know what, what I mean. Did you were there any moments that you laughed during this movie? Oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, what what was a moment? Like, what do you think to you? What was like the funniest part of the movie? I mean, Tom Arnold's face. Yeah. Like perfect. he's he's got a good visage. Like he's got a really good visage. Um, and there were moments that were actually pretty funny to me. Like I said, I don't hate this movie. I just feel like this is sort of a throwback to an age in Hollywood. I would say the '90s, late '80s. Um, I, I can probably, if you gave me a day, I could probably come up with like 30 different films, no problem, where direct, like when you had directors who aren't known for com- like actual comedy, thought we could just film something and that's comedy. We'll just film the act. Yeah. And they, and again, this is a, it's sort of like when you had action films before Jackie Chan. Like if you ever go back and watch action films before martial arts, they're really tough to watch. It's all yeah. horrible sound effects and people punch, punch. It's not <laughs> acrobatic. It's not cinematic. But something happened in 1994. Like I said, I, I would say with Jim Carrey, maybe maybe sort of ruined my expectations for physical comedy a little bit. Mm-hmm. Just simply because I, I – and I again, I do not want to keep harping on Jim Carrey. But let's be honest here. Jim Carrey sort of rewrote the rules for what cinematic comedy was. Yeah. He, like, I mean before that, Eddie Murphy was the standard. But Eddie Murphy did like a different – Eddie Murphy was more reactionary, right? Whereas, like, Jim Carrey was exactly. was the joke. Like, Jim he Carrey, was the joke. Yeah, Jim Carrey was a special effect. Yeah. And he could do the faces, he could do the voices, he could do everything. Like, you watch something, even a shitty movie, like The Grinch Stole Christmas, you yeah. still marvel at how good he is in that movie. And that's kind of tough, because I think The Stupids is more like something that would be satirical. Um, you know, a movie that came out the year before, a movie I love, by the way, I don't know if you love it, was the Brady Bunch movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, good. I love the Brady Bunch movie. Good movie. Um, yeah. There's no reason that movie should be any good, right? No, and like, it, it, it's, it's, it's honestly aged really – like people love it more now than I think that mm-hmm. they did back then. I think people didn't even really get what it was doing. And I think you could even draw a line to that to the stupid – like the stupids, it's easy to write it off as like a bad – you know, what a g- gimmick or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think it does do some satire. I think it is it sat, sat, doing satire to some extent, to a, a big extent even. Well, I was telling you, I, I was telling you, I really like, um, uh, I really like uh, movies that are self-contained and do world building. Yeah. Uh, what was that one movie with Mark Wahlberg and um, Will Ferrell? What was that called? The other guys? Uh, that. Oh, that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One, they made like ten movies together. Who yeah. directed the other guys? It was. Uh, what's oh his man, face? I don't remember. Uh, he was nominated for an Oscar. You know that? God, we're was so it? Good. See, this is this is raw. We're not Megan. We're not Megan Markle here. This is not a $30 million podcast. This is real. Um, Adam McKay. Adam McKay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. He yeah, did direct that. This is oh, my, wow. This is my favorite Adam McKay movie by a, a long shot. Really? It's yeah. a good movie. I, I think I have it on DVD, people, actually. Some people hate this movie the way they hate the stupids. But if, really? you, if you watch the other guys, this is a self-contained universe where everybody is part of this crazy world. Like, it's yeah. not a real world. It's not two stupid idiots, you know, playing in the real world. This is 
everybody's kind of dumb in this world. Yeah. yeah. And the stupids is kind of like that. Whereas Brady Bunch, the Bradys are out of time and everybody's <laughs> always commenting on it. Like uh, there's a great joke in the Brady Bunch when the neighbor's like, six kids and one toilet? I don't think so. But the stupids, everybody's kind of in on it. I don't think anybody ever sits there and calls them calls them out on it right no yeah exactly no one's like oh these guys are idiots or like in dumb and dumber there's obviously like people who are like these people they kind of look at them and they're like you're an idiot but everyone in 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 the stupids almost treats them like they have the expectations that they are who they are and not that they have expectations that they're like when they meet uh the actual sender in the elevator and he said oh sorry to go i'm afraid i have to uh you know by the way can we say can we say who that is (laughs) yeah Good. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, like, like I didn't like. This yeah, it's a, a Captain Kangaroo. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's a generational yeah. thing because I at first I didn't recognize him because I'm I'm. And he's much older than he he's was. He's much back o- in the he's day. much older, yeah. but it, but in the 1990s, if you're an adult watching this, you know that would be like putting Mr. Rogers. Yeah. In the movie. You know who that is, and the yeah. fact that he's set up as a bad guy, a villain is. is <laughs> see, that's the that's that's the best joke of the movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. To me, that's the best joke of the movie is they have uh, Captain Kangaroo himself sort of. <laughs> as the heavy <laughs> so yeah and the, and the best part is 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 the stupids are so the, the, the to them the villains motives can only extend as far as their brains can like process it mm-hmm. so that's why like to them the villain is just he steals people's mail why because it's annoying or like they steal people's trash why because they uh trash needs to exist or something and it's like simply be, it's it's simple because they're simple and uh, and well, I think there's something amazing to that. To me, also. though, the only problem I have is the execution. Like I said, I'm not trying to poo-poo the movie. I mean, <laughs> other people have done that. But like at the beginning, they have what I call a Pee Wee Herman scene, where you see how dumb they are or how stupid yeah, they are. The by, feet on the pillow, right? Yeah, like the kid yeah. is, has the pet goldfish in the thing, <laughs> yeah. or he's making. Like, there's a really good gag about coffee in there at the beginning, where she, like, yeah, like coffee and tea. It's a, it's a visual gag, right? Yeah, but you almost don't even see it if you like blink. It's gone. Yeah. Like uh, we, you know, we talk about Tim Burton being really good at that sort of stuff back in the day. It's really hard to do that sort of day glow, childish like thing. I don't think they make. I don't think they make movies like this anymore. It would all be CG. It all be yeah. CG fart jokes. And then, to be honest, it's with like you, Truman Show type of stuff, right? Exactly. Like Utopia. Exactly. Yeah. You have to watch it again. Which, by the way, I think is another thing that this movie has in common with the second film, is that you, yeah, you kind of have to watch it a lot to really get a lot out of it because. I'll be honest with you. I think you may have sold me that the stupids isn't stupid because I think you're watching something that's such a train wreck. I wonder how much of the train wreck is planned. Like how much yeah. of it is straight face planned. It's supposed to be stupid. I, I think I think it is. I think it's meticulously put together and, and it all makes sense to the logic that they've applied to it. It makes sense because to them it makes sense. And the conspiracy that they've concocted is so ridiculous and nothing in the world none of these things can possibly connect yet at the end of the day they kind of do they do like you you see the 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 deli guy comes and shows up and literally saves their life um and and at earlier it's like how in the this is stupid there's no way these two things this guy's just some random guy you called because you didn't want to call 911 you wanted to call seven thousand four hundred ninety six one one. exactly like the 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 jokes are there like to be honest with you Ethan, the jokes are all there to me, it's just a little execution is wonky. Like, one of the, to me, the funniest jokes in the movie, the funniest jokes are the, how Mr. Stupid, Tom Arnold, misinterprets, like, meeting God. Yeah. They don't even question how they died. They just, they just. Uh... Exactly. Oh, what do we do? 
and they misinterpret everything. To me, yeah. kind of, like I said, the jokes are there. It's actually very funny, and you have to go along with it. And I think, like I said, I think maybe if you go in negatively, you're not you're not primed for it. But you do have to yeah. go in with the right state of mind. I wonder, I wonder if this movie would be funny if you're stoned. I don't. I wouldn't know. But yeah. if you can accept the premise that someone doesn't know about garbage trucks, then you'll better enjoy it. Well, this I'll, movie, I think. I'll say this in, in this movie's defense um, before I have one more clip about it. Uh, there were so many bad Saturday Night Live movies in the 90s. There were so many horrible movies. Oh, yeah. Like, we don't it's talk Pat. about It's Pat or, goodness gracious, um, The Ladies' Man. I think that was. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, with uh, what's his name? T- uh, Meadow, Tim Meadows. Yeah, it's like, I will say yeah. this. The Stupids has a huge, a huge advantage. Um, it's earnest in a way those movies are not earnest. It's not mean spirited. Like it's it, not it, mean spirited. At no point are they ever like they're so sold in this that they are so simple. Like nothing is like even in Dumb and Dumber. You know he's still picking up a porn magazine. Like there's still stuff like that in it. Like this is purely. I mean, like my kids wouldn't. I don't think they would get all the jokes now. My a four and a half year old but like i can't wait to show him this when he's you know six or seven when he can kind well, of get the real world applications of the jokes it kind of reminded me of another movie that has nothing to do with this but i couldn't help but think of it um mm-hmm. when they did the live action inspector gadget huh yeah i totally yeah like i can see that but i don't think i've ever walked out of a movie more disappointed in my life <laughs> as more just just feeling bad about myself than the live action inspector gadget yeah yeah. I was a kid when I saw a second. Oh, I probably man. liked it. It got worse. There's a second one. But uh, was it Matthew Broderick who was in it, the first one? Yeah, he was in the first one, yeah. I, I don't know. Was the second one, um, like, French Stewart or something? Yeah, French Stewart. Like, like That's I don't, so weird. I don't even know what you'd refer to. <laughs> like, he's the poor man something. He's The guy the guy from Inspector Gadget 2 and Third Rock from the Sun. I No, no, I, I know French Stewart, but it's like... No, no, I know. <laughs> like, I, I, like, those are the two things I know him from. Like, uh, God, he was in this one movie called She Devil or something. It was, but okay, but like, I guess he French Stewart would be like the poor man's Tom Arnold. Like, that's <laughs> how really, dare you? That's that's like going to a copy machine and you're running out of ink. Like, yeah. at, at at that point, if you've got French Stewart as your as your lead, I don't think yeah. you should make the movie at that point. I don't. Know how, yeah. I just don't. I don't think there's a purpose there. <laughs> the. Uh... One more thing about the stupids, and I think it's interesting mm-hmm. how this movie is held up. So when I first watched this movie in theaters, nineteen ninety six, I was seven years old, and the part that I laughed the hardest, I laughed a lot. The part that I laughed the hardest, I remember cokes or whatever I was drinking came out my nose, mm-hmm. was the cue card scene. The stuff with the starting with uh, you have Jenny McCarthy going all the way to when the chef starts choking the host. Um, I, I it was it's just that span of stuff in the studio, and when when he says this time, well, I watched it the other day and, he, and I, again, and seen this movie a million times, and when he says and give it to the fat guy, I I woke <laughs> my wife up. I was laughing so hard. I, I did something about how that 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 whole sequence just uh, I think it holds up really well as far as my uh, tastes in comedy you go know, at least. I've, and and the, all and all the the producers just do this simultaneous spit take. Uh, it's just awesome. I just, I'm really happy this movie's not mean spirited though. You could see how yeah. it could have gone. I just maybe I guess maybe I'm maybe I, my ambitions a little more. I wish maybe it had gone. A, it leaned a little further into the surrealism, mm-hmm. but but then it wouldn't have been this movie, right? It wouldn't have been what you liked. It would have been something else, and maybe it would have been forgotten. Like um, yeah. a good, you know. 
it's not really relevant, but you know, if chronological or something. Oh, bio. See, exactly. Anything with Polly Shore, forgotten. Yeah. But um, but you know, there's this controversy going on about like Warner Brothers canceling movies right now, mm-hmm. and the movie everyone's talking about is this Batwoman movie. Oh and yeah, yeah. The movie, and so here's my thinking of this. It's like the stupids. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we don't know what this movie is. We don't know if it's any good or not. If they don't release the movie, it stays notorious. It stays a legend. Yeah. But if they release it and it's mediocre, then it's forgotten immediately. Sort of like the Chinese democracy. Like if you like Guns N' Roses, like you wait 20 years for an album and it's like, eh, okay, that was it. And no one will remember, oh, we wanted this and it sucked. They'll just remember it sucked. They like no one's going to say, oh, this is, this is a fl-. No one's going to look at it as like a, a, a cautionary tale of like fans having too much power which by the way i just read a thing the other day about how the snyder cut like like a large percentage of the tweets or whatever the people Fake. were one guy yeah just isn't that crazy no that's crazy i, I saw the article insane. Too. i think it was rolling stone who did it maybe um, it was yeah but no it's a sort of um you you get this stuff all the time like morbius like morbius was the victim of a oh, joke yeah like yeah. there's this big online campaign and they said, Oh, people are really like this movie. They put it back in theaters and it bombed again. Like, yeah. like it's, well, and before that it was an notorious, like people were mad that it wasn't coming out and it took years to come out. People were like, why is this taking so long? Oh, come on. We want more of this. We want more of this. And then it came out and now it's like the biggest bomb of the year. I actually kind of like the movie. It kind um, of, but it, it kind of works better as a bomb, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. And I think we're going to look at it years from now and be like, this was the anti, like cutesy in joke Marvel thing. Like it was so serious. It knew it was serious. It was dark. It wasn't trying to be, uh, you know, well, Iron Man. You know what's funny though? Like uh, you, you make a good point. Like a couple of years ago, we had the, I want to say live action Lion King reboot. Not yeah. Live action. But you know, the, you know, the, uh, yeah. Who directed that again? It was, um, oh, uh, it was John Favreau, I yeah, think. John Favreau. Yeah. Um, that movie made over a billion dollars. That's crazy. Right. It yeah. has been forgotten. Like yeah, it is, well, been... and it is pretty notorious in this space. I think like you talk to most people, they roll their eyes. I mean, most people who know who've seen good movies, yeah, or who've seen The Lion King at least, will be like, oh, why? But you almost have to like separate those movies a little bit. And I think this is where I want to get into the stupid's real quick. Is that you have these movies, and one of your favorite movies this year is the Minions movie, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it, that's uh, great. what Gru, What is it called? Uh, Rise, Rise, Rise of Gru. Gru. Yeah, but I really liked it. This movie made a lot of money, right? But, you know, maybe not as much as the other Minions, but for whatever reason. But you have these disposable kids' movies that come in. They make all this money, especially Disney stuff, and they are completely forgotten, right? And then you have something smart and intelligent like Rise of Gru. And I guarantee you, if you go to the theater, a good portion of the people in the theater are going to be adults without kids, right? Oh, yeah. And it, it, it was like it, it, it outperformed Lightyear. Well, and this is Lightyear. Lightyear was trying to tap. A lot of movies outperform Lightyear. I know, but Lightyear was trying to tap into nostalgia, and they kind of like took that for granted. I think, mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, "Okay, it'll be fine. Like, we this movie doesn't have to be better because people will watch it anyway." Whereas Rise of Gru, I, I mean, I, I, I wrote this on the review. Mm-hmm. I think you could make a case it's the best animated franchise ever. I mean, there haven't been a lot. I mean, you could you could make a case that communism is great too, but um. No, no, wait, no, no, but I'm saying it's five movies deep and all of them have been pretty good. Uh, like what – there's not a lot of animated 
I mean, if franchises. You're, if, if you're up to number five, I mean, what's the competition? That nice? Shrek. Well, I mean, anything Shrek? more than three. Like, Shrek, after, like, the second one, it sucked. I mean, or even, you can make his second one suck. Like, Toy Story, Shrek. after the third one, I, I, think, I hate Toy Story 4. Look, I'll say this. I think Shrek has the, uh, the, the Terminator fatigue syndrome, where only the first two count. Only the first two, and yeah, I didn't hate Toy Story well, Four. It just it was just, it was irrelevant. It didn't. Well, it didn't well if you want to make that case, you could even say how many mo- how many franchises animated or not animated have been good five movies deep though. Somebody right now listening to this is screaming into their pillow, and they're they're going to shout a bunch of anime movies we've never seen, and they're going <laughs> to tell like you twelve movies. Yeah, long. like oh yeah. man, you got to see the third movie. You got to see the thirteenth movie. But... I'm sorry, I, those don't count to me for some reason. But yeah. um, uh, it's like Godzilla. I'm sure they're great. <laughs> it's I'm like sure Godzilla they're great. I'll like just never watch them. Yeah, God, but you know, even Godzilla fans will will say that there's maybe only a handful of really good Godzilla movies. Yes. Yeah, but like the consistency of doing five movies in a row and they've all been good, yeah. that, that, that's I can't think I can think of maybe three other franchises that have done that like Harry Potter, Star Wars. I mean, say what you will. I like I like the first six Star Warses, but um, and first, no, I don't I mean, know. The first six are fine. The the last the latter third not so much. Yeah. Um, uh, to me, to me, I think it's incredible. Um, what the I mean, we're getting off topic here, but I think it's incredible what the Illumination's done with Despicable Me. But the, but going back to the Stupids, though, I mean, but I do think it matters a little bit because in the Stupids, you have a movie that came out, wasn't liked, bombed. What? But it, the funny thing is, it hasn't really been rediscovered yet. Like we talk about this a while, there have been yeah. some movies that get rediscovered and they get reborn and they become memes and everything. And for some yeah. reason, the Stupids is one of those movies, and I'm sure we're going to come across it again, that hasn't been rediscovered, but it's. It's still there. Yeah. It, it exists. It, I, I've championed it. Uh, there, you go on Letterboxd, and there are some people who are who give it mediocre reviews, but then they talk about how it's actually like incredible. Um, I think people are seeing it. I don't think it's ever going to get. And I, I don't know if I want it to get the type of like resurgence that. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think of like something like popcorn. I know we talked about that, or like. Um, um, here's the thing, man. It's a, it's actually part of a franchise. That's the thing we haven't talked about. It's based on a, it's based on a children's book. Well, oh yeah, the children's book. Yeah, for sure. So here's the sad thing. I hate to inform you. We yeah. are now at peak um, IP, which means we have like 500 streaming channels, and everybody's making something for something. Everything is being reboot. Everything is being remade. Everything is being remade. Um, somebody could easily buy the rights to these books and make like a streaming a streaming show off yeah it. like i haven't i have i don't have any familiarity with the new wednesday show from adam's family mm-hmm. um have you seen it produced by Tim yeah I, yeah i saw the trailer yes yeah, looks pretty cool yeah i mean so i'm gonna watch it because i i love adam's family but yeah i don't know i i don't hate guzman as gomez but uh yeah um yeah. Catherine zeta jones is like match made in heaven though I i'll mean, just i mean they have a long way to go to replace like um Angelica Houston. uh, Angelica Houston and Raul Julia to me. But 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 that being said though, like I could easily see the stupids coming back. I could easily see it coming back. If if we run out of everything else, (laughs) all that's left is the stupids books. Um they could probably get the rights for like ten bucks. They're pretty popular in like Canada or something. It's funny though. I mean we I mean they just seem like they're a non threatening, uh, non woke like alternative, like where you get a little bit of the surrealistic bite, mm-hmm. but but look, we've danced around this long enough. 
what the best part of this movie you know what it is the best scene the, the, like the one scene that uh, the one everyone play. remembers yeah i'm it's my own the, grandpa it, it's the song so yeah. i got a clip i have this i could just sing it for you if you want we can we could do that but <laughs> let let's let tom arnold because this man cannot net natively sing but he managed to make it good <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen the stupids playing i'm my own grandpa i'm well to tell you the truth i'm I'm my own grandpa. You're your own grandpa? That's right. Well, for those of us who've never heard of such a thing, maybe you could explain. Of course. It's, it's quite simple, really. Many, many years ago when I was 23, I was married to a widow who was pretty as could be. This widow had a grown-up daughter who had hair of red. My father fell in love with her and soon they two were wed. This made my dad my son-in-law and changed my very life. For my daughter was my mother cause she was my father's wife. To complicate the matter even though it brought me joy. I soon became the father of a bouncing baby boy. My little baby then became a brother-in-law to dad. And so became my uncle though it made me very sad. For if he was my uncle, then that also made him brother to the widow's grown-up daughter, who of course was my stepmother. My father's wife then had a son who kept him on the run, and he became my grandchild because he was my daughter's son. My wife is now my mother's mother, and it makes me blue, because although she is my wife, she's my grandmother too. If my wife is my grandmother, then I am her grandchild, and every time I think of it, it nearly drives me wild. This has got to be the strangest thing I ever saw. As husband of my grandmother, I am my own grandpa. I'm my own grandpa. Everybody! I'm my own grandpa. It's a funny I know, but it really is so. Hey! I'm my own grandpa. Stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back after this break. Goodness, Can we that is. That I love sing alongs, by the way. It comes out of nowhere. Like it does. It's so good, but it kind of encapsulates what this film. It, it it weaves this yarn in a way that actually makes sense if you look at the lyrics. And I've since I was a kid, I I, mm-hmm. I you know I re- remember looking up the lyrics when I was eight years old. And we had internet. It was like probably one of the first things I did when we got internet. Um, and it's it makes sense. It makes sense how he's his own grandpa, and he like d- tells it in this crazy, twisted A to Z way. But it still makes sense, and I think it's it it's like a microcosm of this movie. So this is a man who can sing multisyllabic like lyrics, and yet thinks he needs to like give his car mouth to mouth. And then there's a scene when he gets electrocuted, and he has like an epiphany, and then. The electric the electrocution wears off, and then he forgets the epiphany he had. I think I think what we're saying is though, if watch the stupids on your own terms, uh, watch it in your own state of either inebriation or non inebriation, but watch it on your own terms and make up your own mind about it because it it does seem like a something that's even if you end up hating it, even if you think it's the worst thing in the world, it's it's something. It's ambitious in a way I think a lot of comedies are not. Um, I would not. I don't. I would. I. I wouldn't know what to say about it's Pat. I wouldn't know what to say about so many other comedies. I, I just well, don't. There's well, nothing here's there. A, and here's the thing. There. There's no real scene in the movie that doesn't need to be there. Like I. I mean, like if you actually look at the story thread, every scene serves it. Like you need every single detail in there for it to make sense. Like you can take a scene out of it's Pat and it would still be the same movie. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of comedy 
comedy movies where the scenes are in there literally just for a joke. Whereas this, I think they work those jokes into scenes that have to be in the movie for it to make sense. And I think that's kind of cool. And at the end of the day, it's John Landis. He is he knows he knows comedy. He knows what's happening. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I think while I disagree, like I don't think I'm ever going to love this movie the way you do. Um, <laughs> and I think and I think this is a good way to transition to the next film. I don't think I have to like it the way you do. I don't think it may be for me. And I yeah. think, which is, I think, is the real story of the next film we're going to talk about. Uh, if you want to give us a little intro, we can play the trailer and move on. Oh, yeah. So the next movie we're talking about is um, directed by uh, David Robert Mitchell. And it's called Under the Silver Lake. It got uh, festival uh, appearances in 2018. And then it got a release um, of some sort in 2019, mostly on Amazon Prime and some theaters. Yeah, we can, we can definitely say this movie was bounced around a little bit. Yeah. yeah, which which kind of makes sense if you think about the the uh, premise of the movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a hard one to peg. Um, and well, let's... I was just saying because it's you could make a case that the powers that be didn't want p- too many people to see it. That's true, and there's good reason for it too. So let's go ahead and play the trailer for Under the Silver Lake. What is it, 2018 or 2019? What would you say? I say 2019. 2019? Okay. Yeah. Under the Silver Lake trailer, here we go. You ask me Come on in! I saw you spying on me earlier. No, I wasn't. Who moves out in the middle of the night? Nothing strange about it. She wanted to leave. How does that not make sense? I don't understand why she didn't tell me. Maybe she didn't like you. Maybe she knows you're poor and haven't paid your rent. Found some kind of code or like secret message in her apartment. It means to stay quiet. Our world is filled with codes, subliminal messages from Silver Lake to the Hollywood Hills. Could any of this be connected to Sarah? I know this girl. There's a message in the music. Really think you're gonna find a hidden message in a pop song? One, two, three. Can't quite see it, but I'm close. Honey, how are you? Mom, I'm fine, mostly fine. Um, Why do we assume that all of this information is what we're told it is? Maybe there are people out there who are more important than us, more powerful, communicating things in the world that are meant for only them and not for us. Yeah. Oh, you think that's weird? A little. Welcome to Purgatory. Good to be here. You're living in a carnival. Hoping to win a prize. What are you gonna win? Under the silver lake. Uh yeah, yeah, I, I think the trailer I think you can't do a trailer for this movie. Um I watched this movie blind. Uh, not literally, but um, I didn't know what it was about. Uh, you sent me the screener for it, I think. I don't know if I ended up doing a review for the site or not. 
but um, it was it was, uh, it was a difficult, three years ago. It was a it was a long time ago. It was difficult because uh, we didn't. I don't think we even knew when the movie was coming out. To be honest with you. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. It was so it was so weird. So it did it did the festival circuit in 2018, um, and then like it bounced around its dates all the like a bunch of times and then it finally got a 2019 release it did like a theater thing and then it got an amazon prime and this was before this was before covid like this wasn't happening back then um it was happening like netflix movies would do it but no just to get like oscar credit uh, you know uh contention no other no one else was doing this it was played in theaters i think for a week and then it went to amazon prime um, where it pretty much lived, and it got a DVD release on top of it, which mm-hmm. I have. Um, yeah. It was kind of the, the, it, one of the more notorious releases of recent years, and a lot of Amazon movies have had these weird uh, release things. Well, I don't know why, but... I think it's because Amazon uh, was in a buying war with Netflix at the time, and they, they were just buying content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, true. That was, I know people were... That's true. That was at that time when people were going to, like, con and just, like... Well, I think, I think it's still happening. Like there was a story this week about Amazon about uh, they're putting all their eggs in one basket for the new Lord of the Rings show because hmm. they've spent so much money on it. It's the most expensive oh, yeah. TV show ever. And but when you when you when you hear them talk about it, they're not talking about the show. They're talking about how much money it took. Yeah, they're they're trying to get a new Stranger Things, basically. Exactly. And I was like, that's. I hope the show's good, but that doesn't bode well when you're just talking about the budget. Like how how yeah. are the characters? <laughs> you know how how how's the story? <laughs> But no, it's a billion dollars. Yeah. You know, it's like that's a lot of money for it a show. Wild. It is wild. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Have you seen? You'd never seen this movie before, right? Under the Silver Lake. Um, I had only seen it recently, and I and forgive me, like as your manager, sometimes it's it's difficult to like see all the movies I see. Oh yeah, sometimes. totally. Yeah. Um, I do like Andrew Garfield. Um, I think he's awesome. Yeah. I do, and I'm really happy that he's somehow ironically broken free. Of Spider-Man and yet came back to Spider-Man. <laughs> so, yeah, like, isn't that funny? Yeah, so I mean, uh, he was so much better as Spider-Man in the new Spider-Man movies as opposed to when he was the lead <laughs> of the Spider-Man <laughs> film. Uh, yeah. So this was—I don't know if you'd seen *It Follows*, which was that was uh, um, David David Robert Mitchell's first yeah movie, um, and it got it has like a cult following in its own right, and then he came out with this, and people were anticipating it pretty highly, and. Um, it came out. It comes out, and it's maybe one of the most polarizing movies ever. Good. Um, and as far as like you, and, and and you'll have people. There are people who are this is their favorite movie of all time, and then you have people who are like, "What did I just watch?" Um, and who don't. And and it's easy to see both of those things if you like. Have I've seen this movie three times now. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's the most I've seen of, of a movie that wasn't a kids movie um, in the last. 20 years maybe I, I don't think I can't think of another movie I've seen three times um, besides like Toy Story and stuff <laughs> that my kids watch uh, but this um, well I it, could I could tell you right something now else. I could tell you yeah. right now um, you know I'm a, I'm a smidge older than you and so <laughs> yeah. but I'm not that much older but I'm a smidge yeah. and uh, the last time I saw a movie do what this movie did in this way was Donnie Darko with- okay that's funny okay so I call this movie a secular Donnie Darko because to me Donnie Darko is like a very spiritual movie like Mm -hmm. you can make a lot of like biblical connections to it and stuff and you can kind of do that with this too but um, they're both very similar in the fact that they both got a screwed up release 
they both got um they both have an incredible cult following even in just mm-hmm. three years this movie has amassed an insane following and donnie darko did that too and they got it, it donnie darko got a re-release of like uh three or four years after it got its initial release and it actually ended up making money um on that second release and i love donnie darko. i think donnie darko is great um also though it's a movie that if you watch it the first time you're like what did i just watch you kind of have to you know see what people are saying about it some different theories um you kind of really have to read some like press junket stuff uh, like what the director was saying um like yeah but i think like i mean they have there's a, there's a lot in common with this and i think it ha- a lot of it has to do and this is not meant to be an insult because mm-hmm. artists are reflections of their world and their and their influences the same way like if someone says quentin tarantino was doing a spaghetti western you wouldn't necessarily accuse him of plagiarizing you know, you know the the Django cha- the Django movies from the sixties. Although some people yeah. would accuse him, um, David Robert Mitchell. Um, he this this movie is an amalgamation of I think thirty years of his childhood watching films, yeah, including up to Donnie Darko. And I think you see those influences spread throughout. And I think that's what makes this movie so fascinating is that for someone of our generation, my generation and your generation, it's almost shocking to see people playing like Super Mario Brothers and not differentiating that from like a silent film like these are just the influences that affected his world you know yeah it's crazy and it's funny because the only real uh pop culture reference that actually impacts the plot is nintendo power magazine um all the other stuff is just kind of world building or like um aesthetic touches like even at one point like obviously this thing's like a combination of vertigo uh rear window oh yes um, psycho can we say that let's just say hitchcockian let's just hitchcock yeah but then what happens is you're watching an hour or something of this movie just referencing hitchcock and like doing nods to hitchcock and then he's at a cemetery and these these actors move away from a tombstone and it's hitchcock's tombstone almost like the director's no that's it's not see that's the crazy that's the crazy thing about this that, oh, it was it, he just put it there. No, no, no. That's a real Hitchcock. Uh, that's a real Hitchcock thing. I actually put that in my notes. That's at that's the Hitchcock grave at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Yeah, but yeah. It's, but it's actually for a different Hitchcock. Oh, is it really? Oh, yeah. okay. I didn't see, that's that. the no. That's the mystery. I didn't know either. I had to look huh. into it. It's, uh, I because, did not know. That. See, that's another. This movie is. You can unwrap. You can unwrap the layers of this movie forever, and you won't uncover it all. It's like a. It's like a video game. It's like a point and click video mm-hmm. game, actually. Yes. If you really think about it, it's, it's so crazy. Like you can look into this, like, and that's what we have to say right now. Like you, we talked about the stupids. You have to see it a couple times. Um, I don't think now. This is this is going to be controversial. Okay. Um, I'm not a big fan of this movie. Mm-hmm. But I'm a fan of the movie, if that makes any sense. Like, sure. I think, I think, I think, um, and if, goodness gracious, it's not zero sum. If I tell you I think it's pretentious, overwritten, self-indulgent and everything, <laughs> it's all those things. Yeah. But, but this is totally. one of the, how do I say this without sounding strange? Um, I think this is one of the best shot movies I've ever seen. A hundred percent. I yeah. think, even to the point, I think it's almost, I even if you don't like this movie, I think you can't deny that it's almost pretty much like kind of like a perfect movie. Um, and I think we're going to look well, back visually, at this movie. Like, can we say this visually? Though? Oh, yeah, visually, visually too. Uh, yeah, it's the cinematography is excellent. Yes. I think we're going to look back at this movie uh, decades from now, and it's going to be on like and, – and I'm not even being hyperbolic here. I think it's going to be on top ten lists, like sight and sound top ten. Like I think people are – I think cinephiles are going to be looking at this movie – 
for years, decades. And I think like what happened to Vertigo and like Vertigo mm-hmm. only in the last like 10 years has been getting, a, getting a lot of, um, uh, you know, it's, it's so strange. About, it's so strange about Vertigo because there was a little, I don't want to say controversy about that, but, um, you, you know, the AFI started their top hundred list back in the nineties. Yeah. And of course it's almost default. Everything gets citizen Kane. Right. But, yeah. but then when the revision came out, Vertigo jumped like a hundred spots to number yeah. one. And nowadays when people talk about the AF, like, it's almost like we've allowed other people's nostalgia to form our opinions because people have talked about the AFI lists and about these top 10 lists. They do bend towards the influences of the people rating them. Yeah, definitely. So, so when people saw Vertigo, of course the first list wasn't Vertigo wasn't up there because they didn't watch it. But younger voters who, who actually saw Vertigo and loved it put it right up there. And I think Vertigo is a masterpiece too. And I think Oh, Vertigo is great. But um, yeah. But the funny thing is, when I'm watching under the when I'm watching this film, you know, with you under the Silver Lake, I kind of feel I'm watching a Hitchcock movie, and I think a lot of that has to do with not just the cinematography, which is almost perfect. Like I just want to be honest with you. Like I'll say this right now: um, at Pop Zara, we do reviews on movies and games and technology. Um, if you have a 4K display, watch this movie on 4K. Watch yeah. this movie on 4K Blu-ray. Don't watch it streaming. Watch it on 4K Blu-ray, and you will be astonished at how good it looks. Like, this movie is one of the cleanest. This movie is one of the best shot movies I've ever seen. Um, it's like all... Tarantino almost shot it at some time. Or, like, Coen Brothers. It's Yeah, it's Coen Brothers. Like I said, it's amalgamation of everything, but it... it's so clean in a way that you don't see anymore. Yeah. It's so yeah. colorful. It's not. It doesn't have that Netflix fuzz on it. You know that mm-hmm. that sepia toned nonsense. It's warm. It it's warm. It almost looks like a. It's very attractive. Like you're like I want to live in this mm-hmm. insipid world that these characters well, are living in. Can we say this real quick? And, oh, and I gotta say, um, I was finished my thought. I'm so sorry. Um, mm-hmm. The soundtrack is done by. Oh, yeah. Is that now? He has a code name, but um, disaster piece. Disaster piece. Um, A.K. What's what's his real name? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Richard Freeland got to start doing video games and that's important because he did a video games uh director played a video game he liked get it now he's doing movies um he's got two movies out this year he's got marcel the shell with the shoes on that little the 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 sort of the animated shell movie we talked about and the movie that just came out bodies 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 okay he did that one too yeah and he's such a good um he's such a good mimic of like bernard herman oh yeah yeah. Like this I honestly thought maybe they actually had Herman's music on this because it sounded just like a Hitchcock film. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I th- I think I think what's it's it's interesting. So I the I you know, I write down movies that I as I'm watching it, I'm like, okay, it reminds me of this, reminds me mm-hmm. of this. Things that are like a little more outside the box. Like I wrote Detour, I don't know if you've ever seen that from like nineteen forty five or something. You are um, you are much more well versed in classic films than I am. It's a great movie. Uh, it's like an hour. You could probably watch it. I think it's like 68 minutes. Um, what, I almost paired this movie. I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time. Mm-hmm. I almost paired it, and I think I even had it in our in our like shared doc with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for very obvious reasons. Of course. Um, but it's almost more so like Barton Fink if you really think about oh, yes. what it's trying to say about creation of art and who's creating the art and why they're creating the art and what kind of – um, ego is driving the artists and it's, the creatives. Yeah. It's fascinating. If if you are in 
if you are even adjacent to you know the hollywood scene or the film industry like it's it's so there's so many truths that are being said throughout this movie and that aren't even being said they're just kind of like touched upon um yeah it's 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 so it's awesome i i i love under the silver lake it's a movie i saw the first time and i didn't quite get it and i just started thinking about it and thinking about it and then i was reading what people were saying i got in on the reddit stuff well that's the thing a rabbit about, hole that's the thing about a, a good film like this though is that you have to watch it on its own terms you have to watch it on your own terms because the big message of this film and the character says later on like some of it it doesn't mean anything like you keep hearing this message it doesn't mean anything um you know i we haven't even touched on the story because i don't really think there kind of is a story here yeah it's a shaggy dog story type it's, of thing. Yeah, it's more of an experience. It's your fault. It's like a, a noir film, like a, a yeah. modern noir film. But it's um, I wrote in my notes. You mentioned Barton Fink, which I love. It reminded me of like a Coen brother. If Coen Brothers had directed Mulholland Drive, totally. Know, like I like David Lynch. Uh, by the way, by the way, uh, I love David Lynch, but I don't like David Lynch aesthetic, and I don't like David Lynch um, progression. Whereas yeah. I love Coen Brothers progression. I love and, the Coen Brothers. And, and David Lynch has kind of like a almost grainy thing that he – like he can never really get the warmth of the camera like the Coen Brothers can get. And, you know, and I and I will make this comment right here because I do – you know, I also do a gaming podcast on this on this show too. Um, I think the director has been influenced by video games as much as he's been influenced by – you know David Lynch or the Coen Brothers. I think video games play a very important part. I mean, we just talked about the the score, but um, this to me it feels almost like if you were doing a noir film through Grand Theft Auto, like yeah. because L.A. is a character here. I think L.A. is the biggest character here, the, the sure. city of Los Angeles, and it nails the L.A. vibe, mm-hmm. like the ethos of mm-hmm. L.A. It nails it, like just the, how people talk, how people think the self-aggrandizement all that stuff it nails it it just like you live near la and i used to live there too so let's be you know let's be honest here i know you live like an hour outside the city Mm -hmm. but like the idea like i'm from everything from i would think uh 1940s noir like actual dirty streets of la noir to like steve martin's like la story where he talks to the signpost um most films have not captured the look of la they've always captured the stereotypes of la like the Hollywood sign, the you know, the the musky, the the sweaty city. Like there are scenes in this that are so astonishing to me, and all it is is just outside of a mediocre apartment. Like just yeah. little things like that, your eyeballs attracted to it because it feels so real and so lived in. Like I think, what's the what's El, La La Land? Everyone went crazy for La La Land, yeah. right? And I get it. I get that hyper stylized version of it. This to me feels like. La La Land without the music. Definitely, I know that sounds terrible. I don't want to. Dem- I don't want to. No, no, no. I, they're both. I mean, La La Land's a great movie too. But yeah, I know what you're saying. It, La La Land tapped into more of like the the pathos of an, of a creative, whereas this kind of is an indictment a little bit of Hollywood in general, yeah. and just kind of like the the beast that Hollywood has created, and like this uh, craving for meaning and all this stuff that is. In, according to this movie is meaningless you know it's it's only as meaningful as as you as you put into it so like let's let's touch on the story mm-hmm. just briefly because sure. there's a little bit of a, a shell here that i think we should do so andrew garfield plays um a unlikable protagonist named sam who 
Um, it's kind of a, he's a you know peeping tom. He spies on his naked neighbor there's, and there's your rear well, window right there. Yeah, there's your rear window and mm-hmm. and he's kind of you know trying to figure out um, nothing. He's literally he's a guy who maybe had aspirations of um, being an actor, a writer, or something, or musician. Do we uh, ever? But as do we, we see ever him know, now, do we ever know about him though? Do are we, we ever don't. told anything about him? We don't. So Correct. we hear the only thing we get, and this is it's brilliant how he includes the conversations with his mom. And his mom's like, "Are you working right now?" "Oh yeah, I'm busy working." Like you kind of the way they're talking is kind of like maybe he was trying to be a writer or something. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, he meets his neighbor downstairs, played by a Riley. Is it Koo? Um, Co. Yeah, it's one of those actresses with a name that's very hard to pronounce. Yeah, uh, and she plays this kind of Marilyn Monroe, manic pixie dream girl. Um, she's great, and he f- kind of falls for her instantly. He goes and meets her at her apartment downstairs. They kind of hit it off. Uh, she's like, oh, I, uh, you know what, I got to go to bed or whatever. And it turns out the next day she seemed to have moved out. And he's like, why would she have moved out in the middle of the night? This doesn't make any sense. All her stuff's gone. Her roommate's stuff's gone. The whole apartment is cleared out. And this sends him down a literal rabbit hole, in a sense, of – and he's also a conspiracy nut. This movie is a fever dream (laughs) for conspiracy theorists. And I'm kind of like – I'm a low-key conspiracy theorist, I think. I think they're fun, and I think there are some stuff that is almost – it's like Blowout, right? I don't know if you've seen Blowout with – John Travolta. It's like I think there are things that that's an old pe- one. You're going way back with that. Yeah, Brian like, De Palma. Uh, that's like, one of my favorites. Like Eighty-two I, or something. Eighty-one. I think it's eighty or eighty-one. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's in, the, in that movie. He says uh, the the villain. I think says, yeah. It's the the conspiracy is so wild and so crazy that if you tell anyone that it's true, they will just literally not believe you. Mm-hmm. And it's basically kind of what I think. And it's, there's stuff like that in the world that people have concocted this thing that is so wild that they're like this no one's ever going to believe anybody that this is you're going to seem like a tabloid if you print this story that this is happening anyway andrew garfield has uh he's a conspiracy theorist and he thinks something bigger is going on with this girl's disappearance and that is kind of oversimplifying what this movie is at the same time there is a dog killer on the loose in la and we see it here and there very adjacent um, people kind of talk about it in passing. Um, Andrew Garfield doesn't seem worried about it um, for reasons that people have. We're going to do spoilers here. Reasons that people have assumed that he is actually the dog killer, and it never gets explicitly stated. Because I think what's brilliant about this movie, another thing, is that it's not concerned with the answers to the conspiracies more so than it's concerned with how obsession will torment you yes and i think that's awesome well you know it's funny um as you were talking i was thinking to myself if i if we made a list of movies this um is inspired by the list we would never end we'd, we wouldn't <laughs> yeah. get out of here wizard of oz there's wizard another of oz. one wizard yeah. of oz the uh, the ones that come to my mind mostly though right the first ones uh mm-hmm. you have movies like zodiac yeah you have, you have la confidential you know, yeah. you have the you have um, twelve monkeys. You know, you have yeah. all these different things. You have Fight Club a little bit. Fight Club. You have like what the movie plays with, and the smartest thing I think this movie does. The smartest thing I think this movie does is that it takes its main character seriously. Yeah. Because at no point, at no point, do we ever not believe that he believes in his own madness. 
You know, like we really believe the character. I, I'm almost disappointed they they gave him a name. Like I'm almost like yeah. You know, it's like well, there are only, there's only six characters in this whole wild movie that have names. I believe. Well, um, like, like actual names because like you said we don't really know about him but we know that he has some connections to hollywood because he does get into the party he does have access he does know people there yeah. but we never know how we never know why it, i mean he could have been burned out but that's not important his story is not important it's his perception and his sort of um i don't know what you would call it ethan not his evaluation his of the world his perspective yeah his perspective is is yeah. through a million broken pieces of glass yeah, it's it's uh like it's an we're we're looking at him kind of like objectively and but like as a sense that he's he's established himself as an unreliable narrator, right? Where we can't we've seen him lie to people and he doesn't um, he contradicts himself, so we don't really know if what he's saying is true, and we've even seen that we're not even sure if what he's seeing is true, but yet we do see his hallucinations as well, um, even though they're very kind of clearly hallucinations well they they are but they're but they do instigate they do motivate him to get out of his apartment like they motivate yeah. him to go on this quest this epic quest it'd be like um the, what's the terry gilly movie the fisher king it would yeah, be like okay. imagine a movie where the fisher king is the hero you know like he's the narrator and you would have a good idea of that which i think this movie also also falls into because we do have a character that is very much the fisher king like who shows up towards the end? Um, oh, what's his name in this movie? Uh, the Hobo King. The Hobo King. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know what's funny? Um, the one thing that came to mind was uh, I'm not a fan of him, but I know a lot of people are. With David Foster Wallace. Oh uh, yeah. In his book Infinite Jest, which is, mm-hmm. and and I apologize if you're a big fan of Infinite Jest. You're clearly smarter than me. But the thing is a giant slack, and you read it, and and I think more than anything. More than anything, this movie has in common with Infinite Chest. And to its credit... The self-indulgence and stuff, you mean? The self-indulgence, but the idea that that everything can be solved, that everything has to matter, everything has to make sense. Um, if you don't want to read Infinite Chest, because it's pretty big, um, one movie that I really, really love, it came out a couple of years ago called The End of the Tour. Uh, oh, yeah. 2015, did Jason you see it? Yeah, no, Jason I have not. That's towards the top of my watch list for probably since it came out. I have not seen it. Yeah, I love it. Um, Jesse Eisenberg's best thing he's ever done. Um, yeah. he has he's plays a writer has to cover David Foster Wallace, you know, mm-hmm. you know after the after the publication of Infinite Jest, and what we find out is he idolizes like everyone else idolizes uh, David Foster Wallace, but you learn really quickly that he's crazy, like he's a little nuts, and maybe the maybe the genius isn't that you can understand him, but the 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 genius is that you can't understand them and you're trying to look for magic of which it's just a trick. Yeah. And I think, I think this, uh, this, uh, film under the silver, Lake, I think it kind of talks a lot about, um, like the death of the author. I don't know if you're familiar with the essay by Roland Barth, Barthes or Barthes, hmm. um, where he talks about, um, basically he discusses how our interpretation and meaning of art should, should be, and is disconnected from the person who created it basically oh, I, like oh, i wish that were someone's true. like oh i wish that were true but but in the sense that like um the like my interpretation of a movie if if i say oh i interpreted this 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 work of art this way they're like well let's ask the director and then they go to the director and the director says something different they're like haha see the director said something different mm-hmm. um basically the death of the author is basically saying that what the director says doesn't matter as soon as you 
make art it is up for other people to interpret and not what your intended meaning behind it was necessarily i don't know if i 100 percent agree with that but it also kind of leads into like art imitating life life imitating art um and basically that whether or not art the author's interpretation is is has credence uh it's our interpretation that's actually more important and it goes along with separating art from the art. It's just like this movie is open to interpretation. Everyone's going to get something different and focus on something exactly. different. There's so much in this movie um, under the Silver Lake. It's it's a quite it's impressive in how they kind of weave it all together. Really and like... another thing, they don't. He doesn't go to. There's only two locations he goes to twice: the apartment, the neighborhood mm-hmm. um, that Andrew Garfield lives in, and the coffee shop at the beginning and the end. By the way, it's interesting. That's interesting. Like as almost like bookends. Yeah. They, um, but you know, it's like uh, you like the stupids, and you you admit that part of the the love you have for that film is that you saw it as a young child, mm-hmm. and that for whatever reason that may have imprinted itself on you. And you know, when you people listen to music, and music's a big part of this film as well. Like REM plays a big deal in this. Um, yeah. REM played a big deal with David Foster Wallace. Like REM played a big deal on uh, Donnie Darko. Like it, it yeah. seems to, it seems to be. You know, That's it's, funny. It's a. It was. He was the musician of choice for. You know. Um, oh, who's the character that Jim Carrey played in Man on the Moon? Uh, oh yeah, uh, um, Kaufman. Andy yeah. Kaufman. So I mean, like REM seems to have been the band for disjointedness, like and troubled psyches. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the funny thing is, if you listen to a song, let's say you, it doesn't have to be like a Beatles masterpiece. You could be listening to a Britney Spears song, right? Mm-hmm. But you're at the dance, high school. You know, you're finally dating the girl of your dreams you know you're dancing for the first time and britney spears comes on that song is going to leave an impression on you it's going to capture that moment in an amber like a musical amber that for the rest of your life every time you hear that song it's going to evoke the feeling it's going to be like a like a nasal smell it's going to bring you back to that time and for, for the song could be vapidness but for you it means something else and i think art imprints itself on us in a way that 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 guides us a lot like we all get something out of it and yeah and to have that's someone but you know, but to have someone say, "Well, it has to mean this to you," is is sort of facetious. It doesn't have to be; it can mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, did did you ever have a favorite song that you you thought you knew the lyrics to, and then years later you actually <laughs> learned what the lyrics were, and you're like, "Damn, I was way off." Oh, I'm sure that's happened a bunch <laughs> of times. Yeah, so it's definitely happened. But yeah, well, that's but that's what Under the Sun, Silver Lake is. It's about a man who misinterprets everything. You know, he's yeah. he's 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 guided by this thing, but it's almost by coincidence, isn't it? Like, it, I mean, can, can we? Spo- is it a spoiler to say oh, that yeah. it's it's disjointed? Can we say that? Like, yeah, no, totally. And well, and, and he's so wrapped up in it needing to mean something, and sometimes it doesn't need to mean. Like you told me one time, like uh, your favorite, like it's harder to explain why you love something than why you hate something, and mm-hmm. and I think that it doesn't always even matter why you love something. Like, I think, I mean, I think you can say, okay, yeah, well, I'm nostalgic about it. I, mm-hmm. you know, I just, you know, I, I relate to the world that they created. But at the same time, like, Andrew Garfield in this movie, Sam, he gets so mad when he discovers, um, another spoiler, that all the songs ever written, mm-hmm. all the pop songs ever written, were written by one guy, which is kind of, and you're talking about you wish that the last movie had kind of gone with the conspiracy was true. Oh, yeah. This movie does that. It does um, that. But at it the does end that. of yes. the day, it also kind of questions, does it matter that it's true? Does it matter, A, because does it change anything? And does it matter, B, because should Sam's interpretation of this art be any different just because the person making it 
um, turns out to be, you know, a fraud in a sense. Well, can I say something? Like, uh, I've read a couple reviews of this movie, and it's it's almost like an existential crisis to read reviews <laughs> of this movie. Because can you imagine being given this movie to review, and you're you you just want to go home? Like, how do I? <laughs> How do I start? It's a hard one, yeah. And I, I, yeah, when I wrote my, I wrote a review for this. I can't remember if it was for Popzar or if I just, I write, I write movies just for myself and don't do anything with them. You're sometimes. a Letterboxd fan. Yeah, I do, but I don't know. I, I think it was good that I didn't know more about this movie when I wrote it. I think I would have been too overwhelmed. Well, but you, all, but you see, that's the problem, though. You're overwhelmed because you think you have to live up to some expectation. What you sort of want to do the movie justice, right? Sure. But like when you come into anything, you want to do it justice. The problem is this movie throws a lot of red herrings at you. It goes all over the place. And one of the things that I love about this is that the first half of this movie is sort of the setup. And the second half of the movie feels completely different to me. It's, It's almost like this movie does go down that avenue, but it never quite goes down. It never it never goes down. uh, Well, what was the movie with um, uh, Peter Sellers? Where he dies being there, being there, yeah. Like yeah. Roger Ebert used to talk about this movie about about selling it to the audience, whether or not he's actually walking on the water or whatever. Yeah. And this movie never betrays the audience. It never picks apart. And when it does go down a little, can we just say some stranger places? Mm-hmm. It kind of feels like you've earned it because our because Sam has gone through this journey. Yeah. It, yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't get ahead of itself. I don't think. I think everything. I think it kind of works its way to like the owl's kiss in his apartment, or like the songwriter scene, which is fantastic. Um, or yeah, like and it's to the point where it the the one the one I think question mark where I think the the viewer is not sure what's real or not is the owl's kiss, right? Like I think at the end of the day, that's the one thing that you watch this movie and you're like, okay, but I don't know what happened. Um, is that real or is that in his head? And I think you could make a case for either. And I think not answering the question again, like you said, doesn't betray, I think it would betray the audience to like give a clear cut answer to that because it would say, listen, this is in his head or listen, it would give the answer. It would, it would give the key to the whole movie. Well, um, I don't want to get too much. We're starting to do what everyone does. Let's just put it this way. This movie has become very big on the Reddit circle where people very big. Yeah. Like literally it's created its own, its own generation of conspiracy theorists who are trying to, <laughs> trying to put locations and maps on everything. And, if you know, I don't know if you've ever followed Reddit, but these people can have found, like, missing children. They found dead bodies. Like, when nothing on this planet is more effective than Reddit organized, they can find it. They could find Jimmy Hoffa. If they yeah. really wanted to, they could find Jimmy Hoffa. There, there's also more YouTube theory videos than any other movie, I think, ever. Well, isn't that great? It's crazy. Isn't that fun? Like, you almost have to like. You look at this movie, box office bomb, did not do very well. But so what? It's doing well now. It's yeah. got a, it's got a new life. It's and I would say this is the movie that helped, like I said, establish uh, Garfield as a legitimate star. Because he, I think he's excellent in this. Can can we say that? Yeah, he's, he's excellent. He's fantastic. He's and uh, if you if you want to see naked. Andrew Garfield, plenty of that. You see a lot of butt in here, a lot of butt. Like yeah. you see more Andrew Garfield butt in this than you see anything else, <laughs> which is funny because I see reviews of this movie and they say, "Oh, it's it's through the male gaze." Male gaze, like there's more naked Andrew Garfield than anything else. Yeah. He's he's naked like a quarter of the movie. <laughs> oh, goodness, male gaze indeed. So, but um, 
but no man it's like it does earn it does earn your trust in to guide it because it does i would say it accelerates it like the first half is going up the uh, the roller coaster and the second half is going straight down and no bumps and it does go places and um, uh, can we just say this? I don't know how you feel about this, but my favorite scene in this movie, my whole favorite scene, and there's a couple actually, um, is the character you mentioned, the songwriter, mm-hmm. which I think is the crux of this. Like to me, this almost yeah. feels like one of my favorite genres is when they update things like the Iliad or the Odyssey, and you're going on the journey, right? You're going on, you're meeting the Gorgons, you know, you're meet, you're going from location to location. Oh yeah. And what a perfect location for L.A. and and let me just say this. As someone who was an outsider to L.A., like the impression was you go there to become famous. You go there because there's so much opportunity. And like a video game, like Grand Theft Auto, everywhere you go, there's a new character. Everywhere you go is a locale. There's something interesting in every crevice. You can't be alone in L.A. because there's always something there, There's all, even if it's the history of the place. Yeah. Um, you know, you love, we talked about this with Back to the Future. Uh, I wrote a couple things down here. I don't know if this sounds familiar to you, but like we see the greatest hits. We see Griffith's, Griffith uh, Observatory. We see Griffith Park, of course. We see the old LA Zoo, which I had seen in movies since like Police Academy Three. Yeah. Was it Police Academy Three? Was the one with Bobcat Goldwaith? Uh oh man, I, I don't know. There's there are like seven of those movies. <laughs> like where they, their their hideout was like the old LA Zoo. Remember? Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's the old LA Zoo. It's in this movie. Wow. It's like free locations. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's yeah. like being there. But then at the same time, you have like these totally like underground caves and stuff, mm-hmm. and like the hills, and like I said, no, no location is given twice, and that's kind of and they're all filled with people who nobody is famous, <laughs> like nobody's famous except for the one band. That's like the only and the the daughter of the of the millionaire. I or feel whatever. so bad for Topher Grace. <laughs> like yeah, he just. Like, think about it. These are both Spider-Man alumni in a movie together. That's so. true. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Well, that's, that's funny. And he doesn't have an... There is a school of thought that Topher Grace's character is a figment of Sam's imagination, too. Well, that would explain, like I said, his his his, his being in places. Like, he's there. But you yeah. never. But he, we never know why he's there. So. It would be more convincing if he didn't have, like, a house that he went to that one time. But um, I think that is also, I mean, it's also could be just to make it more ambiguous. This movie is beautifully ambiguous, by the way. Like, it picks its spots to be objective, and it picks, picks its spots to be subjective. Um, and does it good at on both well, on both accounts. You mentioned, you know, sometimes the answer is not important. I mean, that's very Socratic, isn't it? Like, the whole yeah. concept of, like, of the question is more important than the answer. But it's like... What's funny, what's really funny to me, I want to go a little deeper in that, not too much deeper. I don't want to get too nerdy. But, you know, are you a fan of Socrates at all? Like, have you ever read, like, the dialogues? Um, Not really, like the poetics, like uh, Aristotle and stuff. Uh, No, I'm not. I I think it's pronounced the Phaedra or whatever. It's his most famous dialogue where he basically rallies against, like, the idea of dogma, the idea that if if you put something down to pen, it sort of becomes the thing. Yeah. And when Sam meets, uh, when he meets the songwriter, he's astonished to find out that this one man has been behind every major song ever in his life. And to me, it's electric because he's, it's the first person that's telling him, you know, it's not all about you. Like, the message is not for you. Yeah. The message is not for you. And he doesn't know how to take it. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 uh, 
subliminal messaging versus hidden messaging, right? Like it kind of draws the line. Even at one point he says, no, 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 to the to the author guy. He's like, no, no, I'm not talking about subliminal messages. I'm talking about hidden messages. Like mm-hmm. there is a defined difference here. This is not they live. This is something totally different um, where it's people who it doesn't matter if you know what the message is. Obviously, they do talk about that, too. But um yeah, it's fascinating. And that's the climax, by the way, when he meets the songwriter. That's old school, putting the climax not at the end of the resolution of the movie. Um, I think that's really cool, too. I do have a clip from the songwriter I want to go because it's, it is such a mag- it's just a marvelous piece of cinema and music. And it all yeah. comes together perfect. It's so much fun to watch. And the old man makeup's a little goofy on the actor. <laughs> yeah, it um, is, yeah. But I don't care. Jeremy Bob. But... It's it's a it's a minute long, so let me play this clip. We can talk about it. You ready? Okay. So here we go. Here's the clip. You know this girl? Well, isn't she pretty? Earth angel, Earth angel. She was killed. Well, won't you be mine? Well, along with Jefferson Sevens, but I think you already knew that. Huh? No, I did not. I don't care what's fashionable or cool. It's all silly and it's all meaningless. I created so many of the things that you care about. The songs that give your life purpose and joy. When you were 15 and rebelling, you were rebelling to my music. you know (laughs) that song was not written on distorted guitar no I wrote it here on piano somewhere between a blowjob and an omelet there is no rebellion there's only me earning a paycheck not meant for you so it's better if you just smile and you dance and you enjoy the melody because this ugly old man me i am the voice of your generation your grandparents your parents and all the young people that follow you i love rock and roll drop another dime in the jukebox baby (laughs) oh Look at you. (laughs) Everything that you hoped for, that you dreamed about being a part of, is a fabrication. Your art, your writing, your culture is the shell of other men's ambitions. Ambitions beyond what you will ever understand. It's, it's that's a hard thing to clip because you can't you got to be careful with the music because it's it's plays as important a role yeah as anything he's saying oh yeah and, and i think it's funny too that sam doesn't question what he's saying like he could very well well be making this up um he knows, just as though. sam he, could he, be making it up too i mean in and at one point i think the director throws in something that might be a tell and i'm not sure it's still pretty he, ambiguous like he says, I wrote Ode to Joy, which is he couldn't have because exactly. he's, you know, so I think 
I think he threw that in there to kind of like tip off if you're paying attention, like maybe this guy isn't being completely honest. Maybe he has written some hidden messages, but maybe not all these songs were written by him. And I think it kind of gives the director or an out he's a little bit. Hundreds of years old. <laughs> yeah, or or we yeah, or we're getting yeah. I mean, there are that's the thing. Like the, everything matches the tone of this movie. Like there are touches of supernatural here, right? And there are touches of uh, like surrealism. Um, well, it, yeah. Go ahead. When you were you, when you were in college, did you ever go to one of those clubs? Did you ever hang out with people? And all you did was talk about philosophy. And the first time you ever started reading philosophy, it blew your mind because yeah. because you were thinking you weren't thinking linearly anymore. You were thinking laterally, and you're like, oh my god, are you telling me something could be this? And in a way, that's what this film is in regards to like critics. In a way, like. Um, you're told as a child, you know, this is this book is good. You know, call, you know, uh, you have to read Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the Rye is a good book because school says it is a good book. You have to read On the Road because On the Road is a good book. You know, the Beatles are the best rock group who ever lived. Like you're told these things because we live in a society. I mean, you know, you do this in your other jobs. Like we make top ten lists and we always have to like. It's not a list of inclusion. It's a list of exclusion. Because now we have to, like, make sacrifices. We all have to do the Sophie's Choice. We have to keep talking about, well, well, what makes this so much better? Like, even with a website like Popzara, we, our review system is really, really wretched. Like, no offense to us. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't cover nuance because at the end of the day, we're not a nuanced website. You either like it or you don't. Yeah. There's not a lot of middle ground there. But, but I'm being fair. But um, but you know what I mean. Like what? Well, what if you like you told me yourself? You like the you like um the Beach Boys more than you like the Beatles, mm-hmm. right? And that's fantastic. But if but but I'll admit I was kind of shocked to hear that because that doesn't go with the status quo, you know. And when you meet someone like that, Ethan, which I'm happy to meet you, we can have an interesting talk about that. Yeah. Oh, and I've and I've been shamed by people for not liking things that I quote unquote should like not you obviously mm-hmm. you would never do that but like well, I have though by other people um, you know because they, to them it's objective like film should be objective no it shouldn't like there are if there if it should be objective then there would be no need for opinion at all like that doesn't exactly. make any sense um, I mean we're, we're analyzing um, a movie that is one of the most divisive movies that's come out in recent vintage um, yet they're you can make a case that it's the best movie of the last 20 years if you really wanted to. You probably could. This might, um, be, this might be the best movie that somebody's ever seen. And it, and it might be. And it, honestly, I like I said, I think we're going to look back decades from now, and this is going to be on a lot of top 10 of all time lists. I'm not, and, and, like, I, and I think the only thing that would hurt it would people be like, oh, it takes too many nods from other movies. But it also doesn't, though, on, on another, another, at other times um but i don't see that as a negative like i don't see that too yeah yeah like i mean here's the thing um there's an old adage that i've i've come to realize lately that people talk about prejudice and they say prejudice is just someone noticing right yeah okay you notice the influences you notice the david foster wallace you notice the the hitchcock you notice that right Mm. but it doesn't take away from the film that just because you notice the influences that they might be a little more you know they might be a little more on the nose oh, oh yeah shape of water still won best picture right exactly i mean, I mean and that, pulp you know, that, fiction still has its influences 
But like as for, unique as it was. Let, let me tell you what's kind of groundbreaking for me as someone who grew up in the 80s who never in a million years thought I would ever see the normalization of a video game in a movie. They're playing they're, they're playing Super Mario Brothers. They're on World 1-2. You know why they had that in this movie? Because there is a secret that's a glitch that you can go to something called the Minus World in that stage. That's why that scene was in this movie. Because oh, okay. Yeah, because David, uh, Robert Mitchell, like all kids of his age, I think I'm the same age. Are you talking about the one where you go up to the top and you go to like World 8? No, there's literally a glitch where you slide through a brick and you become the minus world and you get stuck. It was an urban legend. Oh, and it's like and it's like backwards, right, or something? Yeah, it's all you never get out. The game's over because the Yeah, game. okay. Yeah, I've heard of it. I've seen a YouTube video of it maybe. But that's what I'm saying, but before the internet and everything, it was all it was all whispered. It was a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. How do you do this? How do you do this? You know, and not all conspiracies are true, but every mm-hmm. once in a while they come true. Sure. And it's sort of like, well, what else is the world hiding, right? What else is there? Like, wait a minute. You mean I don't have to think Citizen Kane's the greatest film in the world? You mean I don't have to think, you know, this this is the best song or this is the best book? Are you telling me, yeah. like, there's nothing wrong with me that I don't find Moby Dick interesting? Like, it's such a mind blow, right? A it, mind that, blow. And that's what's so great about this movie, too, is it kind of – it advocates for independent thinking. It doesn't mm-hmm. advocate – for right or wrong necessarily like yeah he comes to the conclusions that he assumed kinda but also like there are people there are a lot of clues in here that say maybe this is just in his head maybe like other things aren't really happening that we're seeing happen um it's i i yeah i think i think this there's something here that i think if people if there's a filmmaker who watches this movie and this is their favorite movie i think we could get something really cool out of um where this is headed um just from even just from a stylistic point of view i mean i've always been kind of fascinated with the unlikable protagonist like the clockwork orange or the vertigo even um yeah this it's yeah it's it's fascinating this movie's really cool and i mean and i relate to it on a personal level as well well let me tell you one thing i appreciate about the writing of this movie like i like the opaqueness of it but there's when he meets one of the the comic fan you know the one with the masks of johnny depp (laughs) yeah he says this comment. He says, "Oh, I should like he. If this was a worse movie, he says, oh, I really, I should get a family." Well, you yeah. thought he's going to be self-deprecating? No, they oh no, someone to leave my mask to. <laughs> like, yeah. like there's, he doesn't feel there's anything wrong with his. Yeah, he's not saying I need a life. He's saying I need someone to leave all my nonsense to. <laughs> to this nonsense, and we won't say what happens to him later. Yeah. But like, but that's what I'm saying though. The movie doesn't answer anything. And again, going back to Socrates. The joy of Socrates was was the expansion that it's okay not to decide, like because you know once something becomes definitive, it becomes inheritable, and if everything becomes inheritable, then you're no longer thinking for yourself. You're memorizing. You're cataloging, and cataloging is not the same as thinking. You know, like this is this film is clearly David Robert Mitchell cataloging um, other movies and making something new out of it. And sure. Yeah. It's, and it doesn't always succeed. Let's be honest. As a film, it doesn't always succeed. But it, but anything that takes such big swings is not going to hit every ball, you know. It's it's just I mean the law of averages. So, but this is your film. So tell me, tell me a quick. You make the case to someone who's listening to us and like ah that sounds like a mess. I don't have time for that. Um, I think it, like like I said, you have to watch. This is a movie you have to see. You don't even have to, but you should see more than once. And I think if you watch it the first time. And you're like, what did I just watch? I really, really um, want to sway you to just 
go like as 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 backwards as it sounds go on the internet and like see what people are saying about this and it'll make you it'll make you want to watch it again at the very least it'll make you think about it in a different way like a donnie darko is kind of the same type of thing like it's so polarizing that you don't know what to think about it um for me like i related to it on a i, I mean i used to i don't know if i've talked about it on this podcast before but i used, was in the music industry you know kind of on the peripherals of, of it uh, to some degree uh yet i was still you know i was making songs i was you know writing songs for other artists uh and i kind of I was working my way upwards, and I had my foot in the door, and I kind of got Are disillusioned. Are you the songwriter? Did you write Ode to Joy? That was me. Yeah, I wrote oh, Ode to yeah. Joy. No, but I but I, 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 related to the – I've always kind of had this thing in the back of my mind. Like, isn't it weird that these non-creatives are deciding what our culture is? They're they're engineering our culture. They're mm-hmm. molding our culture. These people and – that, and that's what the Barton thing – Barton Fink thing comes into play. Like, Barton Fink is about a guy who can't re- – he's a sociopath, yet he's writing – these totally like he's writing about the depth of the human uh you know existence or something but he can't relate to humans like it doesn't make any sense like it's kind of the same thing like there are people out there millionaires who are getting their job is to decide what gets put on the radio what gets put into the movie theaters yet why is it's their job because they're rich or is it their job because they know art um and i've always kind of had that in the back of my mind and then when i started doing music and you know i'm pitching songs my writer and my co-writer and i would pitch songs and we're like these are really really good we show them to other people and they're like wow like this is going to be your the one that gets you you know your deal and we show it to a and r people or or executives and they'd be like nah this is not what we we want and then we're listening to songs on the radio and they're not we feel like they're not as good as what we're writing and we just got i got disillusioned with it and it kind of i connected with this movie like right around that time that that was kind of happening to me and um just trying to figure out that your that's success isn't about like your isn't about someone else's standards of success isn't about like monetary value and um essentially i i started finding meaninglessness in pop music like it was trying to sell like a fantasy and a fantasy that is shallow and you know people were attaching themselves to this and i kind of got disillusioned with it i related to this movie under the silver lake on a lot of those levels and um can i um yeah can i add to that so again you live in la area right Mm -hmm. and so it's i we just have to make the statement that if you live in la area that used to be like the focal point for a lot of what's going on because that's where hollywood was a lot of music industry was there a lot of publishing industry was there so like just geographically that was the place to be but if you come from Kansas or if you come from Illinois, you come from some smaller area, you could be a much bigger fish in a smaller pond. And you could have the you could have a community behind you, right? You could have a community behind you because you stand out. But if you go to L.A., like you may be super beautiful in Detroit, but there are so many beautiful people in L.A. There's so many more. And, and, you'll, many and you'll basically people. just land on a billboard exactly for contact lenses exactly and there's so many spots and you see this sort of as sam goes from party to party like there are people that are doing anything they can to stand out like you could go to college you could be anything but you you have to stand out it's not enough that you have talent and but you have the talent that they want and it's it's deflating because i told you i used to work in l.a when i used to work in l.a i i was disillusioned and it turns you off a little bit because you have to do what you're told a little bit because well, that's that's the deal you make. That's the deal, you know. And it's not for everybody. And I think pre-internet, 
um, that's what you had to do. And nowadays, people have discovered, you know, independent media. Just, it's a little they, more democratic now. Whereas this this movie, by the way, takes place in 2011, I believe. 20, 2011. And I think that's kind of perfect because it it makes it sets it just before like like you know Instagram is really taking hold. Exactly. Uh, and stuff so it's it's a little more like people are kind of transitioning to new media in, in this sense um not everybody's uh, not everybody's holding cell phones and taking pictures of everything. yeah it's very they're still living in this moment they're still watching a movie in a cemetery and, and just watching the movie um yeah. and, and and i also like the line that it draws from between music and film too and this is why i kind of like whereas music you can be brainwashed with music right you can't in this day, you can't really be brainwashed with film. You can be brainwashed with music if it's just on the radio all the time. Uh, and these rich people know this. Like you can, it you can just surround yourself in songs you hate. You can't really surround yourself. You can't watch the same movie over and over again that you hate. You're just not going to do it. Um, there's a lot more dem- democratization. Yeah. Well, you know what's really strange though. Going back to my my theory about the songs, is that sometimes though, you're when you're told to like something, that can have a negative, an adverse effect on you. Mm-hmm. Something that under normal circumstances you would enjoy, that you would absolutely do. Like, let me give you a great example in music. Um, this summer was the first time in th- almost 40 years that Kate Bush had a hit song on the radio. That's wild, though, isn't it? Isn't that crazy? And what, yeah. and what happens, like, I always knew I always knew that song. You know the song I'm talking about, right? Running Up the Hill. Yeah, I actually, I like, I, I heard it when it got popular again, and I was like, okay, I think I might have known this song, but I really wasn't familiar with it. Well, what happened is, is that... Kate Bush and God bless her and everything. She was never that commercial an artist. The song clearly is a standout from her catalog. But you go back to the '80s, and you're a music fan. There's a lot of good synth music in the '80s. Can we just say that a lot of great synth, a lot of great music was being produced, and not everything is going to be a hit all the time. Even if you're great, even if you're fantastic, it doesn't matter. There might be something else that's just more in the mood. And it took what 35 years, but that song eventually had had its stage, it had centerpiece. And people responded to it. Same with like uh, another song, from Stranger Things, Master of Puppets from Metallica. Oh yeah, that was the other one. Yeah, yeah, that, another song that never charted. You know, it's crazy. Or um, there was that one guy, that guy on doing TikTok, when he was uh, lip syncing to um, Fleetwood Mac's, you know, Stevie Nicks, you know, Dream Song, became a big hit. These are old songs that have found new life because of new audiences experienced them a different way. It, it does give you hope, though, as an artist, that that the product you create doesn't need to live right now. It can come back. You know, there can be an audience for it sometime. I mean, you won't. Or, get any, you might not get any money for it later. But or 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 even in the right here. Like, have you seen the documentary "Searching for Sugarman"? No. Is it good? Uh, it's basically about this guy um, who was like insanely popular in another country, mm-hmm. and like he never realized it. Really? Yeah, musician. Well, I got wow. I, I haven't seen it actually. I just I know it exists. I remember. I think I think uh, the director or something was on Letterman back in the day. I, I remember. Well, I'm gonna put that on my queue. Um, yeah. But isn't that crazy though? It's like we put so much effort on being popular. We uh, you kind of miss the boat on <laughs> on what what the message you're actually trying to be. And I mean, yeah. I, I'm not an artist like that, so I don't know the struggle. But if I was, I think I would. I mean. I don't know. I guess I would have some hope that maybe someday, like a, like an archaeologist, somebody would uncover my goods and <laughs> put me in a museum and say, "This is a, you know, this is a example of bam, early man." They're gonna yeah, be, they're it, gonna be disappointed. So I, I, 
I think in that regard too, like we're talking about La La Land, I think these are two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. I think you look at this as the more cynical, uh, like uh, it's an indict, like I said, it's an indictment of Hollywood in a sense and pop culture. Um, whereas La La Land is, it sympathizes with the idea that you want to make it in this industry. And um, I think you can, I think if you are an artist, you can watch both of these movies and find catharsis uh, from different angles. Well, or how about a movie that synthesizes the two? Um, you talked about Muppets before. How about Muppets Take Manhattan? You know, oh, yeah, that's you, a good one. Yeah, you yeah. basically have the most optimistic characters of all time being treated like garbage when they go to the yeah. city and finding out that it's a business, you know. Yeah. And but at the end, you know, something happens. They're they're able to <laughs> they're able to reconcile the two. That yeah. by be, just by being hopelessly optimistic, you know, and you know, and physical violence. Let's just be put it there. Yeah, that's true too. <laughs> Physical violence will solve amnesia, but but no, I got to tell you something. I'm really happy we had a chance to talk about this particular movie because I don't think we're going to do it justice because I don't think there is justice. Um, yeah, you could talk about it forever. I think you could, and and I and I, I just want to say one more time, um, I was a little critical on it, and my criticism stands, but I don't think that's an indictment on the film to say that it's not perfect. You know, I think to say, like I said, this movie is aesthetically gorgeous. It is, I, 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 don't, I don't know how else to say it, Ethan. Like, I, I really want to stress this. This movie is one of the best looking movies I've ever seen, ever. Oh, yeah, it's like up there with like the best, like, I mean, it, it, it's, it sounds insane to say this, but it's up there with like some of the best Hitchcock movies as far as just like the warmth of the camera yes. and like what, I, like it, it's it's almost like intangible. Like it's, you can't even really put your finger on it. It just looks amazing. Um, it, it makes you want to watch every movie that's referenced. It makes you like. I I think I saw this before I saw. I think I had not seen Vertigo yet by the time I saw this, and then I watched. I, I this movie made me want to watch Vertigo because everyone's like, "Oh, it's kids like Vertigo." I like and Vertigo. I watched I, I'm Vertigo. Kidding. Yeah, and it was yeah. really good. And and I was like, okay, I see the connection. And then I watched this movie again after it. And um, it kind of like the link between the two is really fascinating um, as well. Well, I'll say this though: um, you watch. A, I watch a lot of modern movies, and I get everything's digital now, for whatever reason. Mm. But digital, for the most part, if you don't know how to use digital really well, it comes across as um, plasticky and almost overprocessed. And you mentioned Quentin yeah. Tarantino when Tarantino made The Hateful Eight. He really bragged about using natural light on that and recording it on what was it thirty millimeter film? Four seventy. Se- oh yeah, or was seventy millimeter? I think right. It, that matters. And you know, you and I talked about this in private uh, a couple. Oh goodness, it might have been a couple years ago now. Uh, you go back and watch seventies films that were on stock, and there's something about seventies stock film, like really well made seventies films, that really captured, I think. Um, scope in a way that I don't think you you really have anymore. I, I wonder how much that has to do with like CG backgrounds and it has to do yeah. with artificial stuff. Well, there's no there's there's no coincidence why you have so many movies from that from the 70s specifically that are so iconic like yeah, Willy Wonka, mm-hmm. Star Wars, Jaws, uh, The Godfather. I mean, you, literally the 70s is is one of the most important decades of film. Um, American Graffiti, geez, uh, yeah, The Sting. I mean, you could be you could go literally day, on and on. Um, Halloween. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have movies that are so small, but you feel they you you are like immersed in these worlds because of just the way that they're shot, right? Or like, um, or even stuff you wouldn't even imagine. Like I know a lot of Scorsese stuff like this is like Scorsese might be the king, yeah. of, might be the king of this sort of aesthetic. This sort of it's not handheld, but it's it feels handheld. 
but it's just it feels like dolly stuff exactly or like a movie like i know it gets poo-pooed on like kramer versus kramer people poo-poo this movie all the time because it stole the oscar away whatever Mm -hmm. um it's shot so gorgeously like there's a scene when dustin hoffman's running through the city and the camera follows him i don't know how they did it without a boom mic but like they followed it and it's so real and it feels real you could see the grain you could see the dirt but it feels real and that's what this movie feels like it's clean sure right but it's colorful. It doesn't look like they smut. It doesn't have that blue filter that like Spielberg movies have. It doesn't have yeah. that that sepia tone. It looks the colors look so nice. They look so inviting and so fun. I don't know who the DP was on this movie, but um, I it, it reminds me of. Did you see the movie? Nobody. I can't remember. We we oh, probably yeah. talked about Are you it. Kidding? Hello. it. It's very. That movie was also like like, and it sounds crazy, but it was very like warm. Like you, it wasn't oversaturated. It felt very real the way that movie was shot. It kind of. It. I thought about that movie a lot, and that movie was very much. It had a lot of like Universal monster, uh, like kind of old Hollywood inspiration. I'm trying to look up who the DP was for that one. Was it Paulo uh, Pogarasso? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, he did Midsummer. Oh wow, yeah. He, I mean, Midsummer. Midsummer was another gorgeous looking movie. I know. <laughs> it really was. I know. Uh, it is like, as awful as <laughs> that movie. Like tormented me in my brain forever. But yeah, it looks awesome though. He did Hereditary too. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Um, both of those. Yeah. But a lot of that. Even I know he didn't. Do Fresh. It. Oh god, is that the Cannibal movie? Yeah, he did Fresh. That it actually. That's a really good looking movie. Also. Is it? Well, go, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. We don't give enough credit to DPs and cinematographers. We just don't. And because they know how to light a scene, like we talked, uh, we didn't talk about it on the podcast too much, but like the thing, uh, who was the guy who yeah. did who who did the thing? He's very famous for it. John Carpenter. No, uh, the, talk- the, the the cinematographer. You're talking about the D. Oh, 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 I see. Um, very, oh, jeez, I don't know. He's iconic for what he did. Let me let me. Pull was that on. the guy who he Dean did Cundin. like all of Dean Cundin. Okay. Oh yeah, he did uh, Back to the Future, right? Mm, he did so much. Like you look at yeah. his thing, he's almost unparalleled. Like, yeah, like he did. He know like natural lighting looks better. I'm sorry. It just does. Yeah. And, the rev. I mean, just look at the Revenant. It's like one of the most beautiful movies ever. But the colors, though, the colors of under the silver, under the silver lake are so poppy. They're so nice. And there's so much diversity to the color. And it's just like I said, if you have a really nice display, if you have a really nice 4K display with HDR, this movie is as impressive looking as like Jurassic Park or, um, yeah. You know, I'll be honest with you. Um, the most impressive movie I've seen this year visually has been Top Gun Maverick, mm-hmm. um, for all the reasons we said right now. And like, this is up there with it. Like, it's just it's just a visual masterpiece. And I got to give it yeah. credit. It's so much. It's so good to look at. Yeah, no, it definitely is, and uh, it's and it's edited really well too. Um, I don't know the editors are, but uh, yeah, it's it's um, it's definitely I it, it's a lot of movies I watch and I have to like take I, I watch uh, I have. Uh, photophobia in my eyes so i have to like mm-hmm. watch with like lenses on and uh, a lot of times i have to like take my glasses off if i have if i can't if it's too dark this movie it for as it half of it, most of it takes place at nighttime and i didn't have to do that at all mm-hmm. it's just still very bright even though it's it's nighttime yeah it could have gone it could have gone a, like my criticisms of the stupid is that john landis <laughs> and his people made every wrong decision my non-criticism here is that the the people involved in every right decision making this film yeah and i gotta tell you i think i'm gonna come back to this and i think my opinions are gonna change um i I may like it less tomorrow i may like it more but i think it's Mm. it's keeping my brain thinking and that's really the highest compliment i can i can give to a movie like this really yeah yeah it really it's a it's a great movie um 
like I said, I've seen it three times in three or four years. Um, every I've time seen I watch it, three times today. And <laughs> <laughs> every time, every time I watch it, you know, you notice something different. You think you see it from a different angle. You ask different questions, and um, it's definitely one of the, maybe like one of the most meditative movies ever. You know what's um, funny? In that sense. Um, I got one more comment about this, and it's it's kind of it's kind of relevant. We talked about mm-hmm. the Coens. I remember going to the movies in, was it 1998, 1997, and seeing The Big Lebowski for the first time. Mm-hmm. And this was coming off of when Fargo was considered the best movie of, our, of, my, of my generation. And I remember the reviews for The Big Lebowski were terrible. Like, they were not very good. And I think yeah. people were expecting another Fargo. And I think that was the moment of my life as a moviegoer that I learned to think independently, like for myself. Because I really wanted to see The Big Lebowski because I really liked Fargo. And it was nothing like Fargo. Nothing. And over the years, I've learned that The Big Lebowski is the Coen Brothers' uh, biggest movie of all time. Like, it's... it's their best, it's, like their best movie, you mean? Um, I don't know if the word best, but it's... Become, oh, you mean, oh, you mean just, oh, I see, like, yeah. the cult following yeah, and, like, like all, it's, oh, yeah, it's, for it's sure. Yeah, Big Lebowski is but, maybe the best, the biggest cult movie of all time. But you know what's funny? But none of that takes away the fact that Fargo still kick ass. And Fargo, yeah. Fargo's its own thing, and Fargo's kind of come back, and you know, with a TV series, it's very similar. And I realized you can like both, you know, you can like both things, and you can enjoy them for very different reasons. You know, you can, you know, you like chicken for the, you like chicken differently than you like fish. But I don't know. It's like I said, I think you picked a good pair this time. I really do. Yeah, like they, they, I, the, I, when I first thought of it, I was trying to think of something that was maybe tonally the same. And that's never the right route, I don't think, for me. But I, 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 as soon as I thought of Under the Silver, like I was like, this has to be it. I kept being like, maybe there's something else because like I've already seen this movie a lot of times, and like I wanted to watch something a little less familiar. But I was like, no, I'm gonna do it. We're gonna do Under the Silver Lake and the Stupids. It's gonna be the we most we did it. strange, <laughs> strangest pairing. And on the title of this podcast, it's gonna say The Stupids well, and Under the Silver Lake. Look, Martha Stewart. And Snoop Dogg is a strange pairing. Okay, exactly. <laughs> but it works. It works. Yeah. That's a strange friendship. Uh, the Stupids and Under the Silver Lake is a strange pairing that works. You know, you ha- you kind of have to make it work, but it does work. You gotta bend the rules a little bit, but it does fit. Hey, someone someone's gonna do a double feature at a theater with both of these movies, and it's gonna be a hit. I'm telling you. That's what someone like Tarantino would do. That you know that he would. He yeah. Would, oh yeah, he, he would, would do make that. It work, and and you would believe every word he said when he said it. But um, no, I think you picked a good thing. I think any final thoughts about the stupids or under the silver lake before we wrap up? Uh, just if you haven't seen them, watch them because um, maybe maybe in tandem, who knows? <laughs> but um, I think I think I think you you're gonna be at least surprised by both of them, by each of them, um, in some way. My only thing is, if you can see the stupid, see it however you can. That movie's hard to find. But if you see, I have it on DVD. <laughs> DVD, yeah, I got it tattooed. Uh, Under the Silver Lake, my my only thing is see it on a good display. That's all I have. Yeah, to say. Like, you, yeah, you have, yeah. Don't watch a, some like. Don't watch it on your phone. Don't it. watch it on your phone. No, do not yet. Watch it and 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 take it in. And I I will say one more thing. Uh, if you do watch Under the Silver Lake, don't be like ashamed. Like maybe watch it by yourself and don't be ashamed to like pause it and like yeah. rewind things because uh, like I know I I do that when I watch movies I like watching movies by myself sometimes because mm-hmm. you can kind of really go back uh, but yeah I would almost do that even because it might make it uh, more you might 
if you're that type of person so yeah and don't be intimidated by it either like don't be intimidated because you don't understand because maybe you maybe you're not supposed to understand yeah it's not a litmus test on your intelligence no. it is a litmus test on your taste though that's different <laughs> like your taste yeah. is, it's taste but yeah. i i think uh i think we did it ethan what do you think yeah i, I think, think it's it. it i think uh that you've been listening to the movie time podcast from your good pals over at popstar.com this has been nathan evans managing editor of popstar and once again want to thank my co-host mr ethan brown ethan yeah thanks see pick some good stuff here yeah every once in a while we bat a thousand <laughs> Stay safe, everybody. Go see some good movies. There's a lot of good stuff out there. And we will see everybody next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the PopZara Podcast. For more quality original content, check out PopZara.com for the latest reviews and previews in gaming, movies, tech, and more.